This week, Mehul Rivankar from Qualys is with us to discuss defense strategies for combating ransomware. Then, Whitney Joy Smith from the Smith Investigation Agency joins us to talk about surveillance, investigative research, GPS tracking devices, and more. In the security news, Microsoft adds automated mitigations for exchange servers. Senior U.S. cyber officials support mandatory breach reporting. 2021 has broken the record for zero day, but maybe that's a good thing. Speaking of which, Apple patches some zero days. Lithuania warns against using Huawei and Xiaomi phones. The FCC pays companies to ditch Huawei and ZTE gear. The latest on cybercrime and UK researchers find a way to pickpocket Apple Pay. All that and more on this episode of Paul Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. Keeping up with security issues across thousands of web assets without the right approach to web application security is a daunting task. Get ahead with web vulnerability scanning automation from NetSparker, a leader in dynamic and interactive application security testing known for its ease of use and accurate results. Detect a wide range of vulnerabilities in all legacy and modern web applications. Address security bugs at scale by automating the confirmation process. Automatically prioritize vulnerabilities and assign actionable tickets to the right developers in their native workflows for rapid remediation. For more information on how to scale application security with ease, visit securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Hey, welcome to the show. This is Jeff Mann, not Larry Pache. Excited to introduce, not Paul Asadorian, but a man who clearly liked to play with label makers when he was a kid, and who knows, maybe he still does, Mr. Adrian Sawaba. Did I say that right? <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah, so so my handle, uh, Zawaba, is the worst misspelling I've ever seen of my last name. Sanabria. <laughs> Thank you for that, that intro. It also Jeff. looks like a domain with your little sign back there. I'm like, oh, cool. Can you register your Twitter handles as domains? That'd be fun. Yeah. You should be able well, to. I think there's a TLD for that. Cool. Yeah, and and now there's uh, for cryptocurrency, there's like domain like things that you can buy. Also, not not quite sure how all that works, but mm-hmm. they're going fast, and you got to register soon. <laughs> so yes, welcome to Paul Security Weekly. This is episode seven twelve, recorded on Thursday, September thirtieth, twenty twenty one. As Jeff pointed out, I'm the host today, as Paul is using his quarterly get out of hosting card this week uh, i think he gets one of those once a quarter i think it's been exactly three months since i did the uh the last one and um also joining us today is mr tyler robinson geez we let paul have time off even in the corporate world i know we're kind of under new He's management i don't know that seems like this has his name on the show like i don't even know if that's an option at this point Adrian Security <laughs> Weekly. This week. Yeah, didn't we change it last time? <laughs> Every time we I did. host, we change the name of the show and he has to change it back. Well, the problem is that we've already got an ASW, so we can't really do that. Sorry. Mm. Uh, so SSW, Zawaba's <laughs> Security Weekly. Zawaba's Security Weekly. There you go. SSW. 
And that is uh, Mr. Josh, Josh Marpet joining us as well tonight. How you doing, Josh? Pleasure. Happy to be here. This is exciting. Yeah, no, it's going to be fun. Uh, we've got some uh, very uh, interesting interviews today, definitely. Uh, excited about both of those. And I had a lot of fun putting together the, uh, the stories for the news. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, I've got some, uh, some wine here with me. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to try and relax as much as possible, you know, uh, hosting somebody else's show for them. <laughs> <coughs> Who else is hosting? <laughs> Uh, some so announcements. Subtle. Some announcements. Infosec World 2021 is proud to announce its keynote lineup for this year's event. Hear from Robert Urjavec, plus heads of security at the NFL, TikTok, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Stanford University, and more. Plus, Security Weekly listeners save 20% on digital pass registration. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ISW 2021 to register now. All right. So today we are talking about defense strategies to combat sophisticated ransomware. With us today is Mehul Revankar, VP Product Management and Engineering at Qualys. Mehul knows vulnerability management and patching inside and out, having led teams at SaltStack and Tenable in the past before joining Qualys. Welcome, Mehul. Hey, thank you for uh, having me on the show. It's always exciting to be on Pulse uh, Security Weekly, or should I say... Agents Security Weekly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you should. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, uh, you've worked with Paul in the past. Uh, did did he? Did he often just not show up for work like he did today? Is that is that a common thing for Paul? He only showed up for work when we had to write the blogs. Um, so he was always there. And I also worked with Jeff while I was at Tenable. Jeff was was good. <laughs> uh, we we get a full on uh, reunion going on here. We do. Yeah. Nice. If, if only we had Matt on the call, that would be a complete reunion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Matt's Matt's got his own show now. I've got my own show now. I've taken over Enterprise Security Weekly, so we're we're starting to divide stuff up. And uh, gone are the days when you saw Matt and Paul on on pretty much every podcast. Got some more <laughs> some more folks helping out now. Just a couple. Just a couple, including the one you forgot to introduce. Jeff, did I forget? Who did I forget? To? No, I, I, I said thank you no, to Jeff. No. I, but you didn't I? introduce me. We forgot compliance security weekly. That's okay. I believe there is one more. <laughs> All oh. I was going to say, Adrian, was it's ironic that Paul decides to take today off because my wife is out of town. So we could do the news as late as we want to tonight because I don't have to worry about interrupting her sleep patterns. So, so, so oh, you're wow. thinking I'm not going to go as late with the news? Is that what you're saying? That's well, that's why the, past, the irony we've, is there. We've, we, I think the last time you were on, we challenged ourselves to actually end end the episode on time at nine o'clock. Not that it matters to anybody that's listening or watching, you know, the recorded version, but. Uh, yeah, let's just see where it goes. This is your show. Let's do it. <laughs> well, Jeff, if you and me get into PCI, uh, we'll, we'll we'll go past nine o'clock. <laughs> Very true. And we have so a, and we have a PCI article related article tonight. That we I, do, and I, I'm excited I, about it. I'm, I'm glad you added that. That's that's some crazy stuff. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about that. Uh, but for now, um, Mayhul, um, so talking about we're going to talk about ransomware. 
And I feel like um, I feel like I can't go a day without talking about ransomware. But uh, obviously, it's the thing hitting companies the hardest. Uh, you know, it's it's what companies are uh, one of the things they're most worried about defending against. Uh, so, you know, to kick things off here, um, I believe you have some stats on ransomware that we can use to kind of set the stage, set the discussion. No, I mean, I do have stats, but, you know, before before we get into that, I just want to talk about um, the, the, the ransomware issue itself. I mean, I remember a few sure. years ago, these ransomware attacks and were, were rare. I mean, I, I uh, you know, it was not um, a very common occurrence. I believe WannaCry was the one that really started this uh, going forward. But now, as you said, you know, the... The number of attacks are uh, are increasing pretty much uh, pretty much every day. I mean, I was looking at a report from uh, a ransomware task force report, which was released earlier this year, and um, it looks like almost 2,400 organizations were impacted by uh, ransomware related attacks in just this year and the last year. Uh, even the uh, you know the number of uh, ransoms that are paid are, uh, are increasing. I believe they're at around 200 million or 185 million dollars and so on. So, so uh, the scale and scope of ransomware attacks has exponentially increased um, in the last one or two years. And part of it, I believe, is could be related to um, COVID as well as uh, organizations had to uh, go remote. They had to open up their systems to be accessible over the internet and so on, which has in turn helped um, ransomware attacks increase because of RDP phishing attacks and so on and so forth. So um, the ransomware attacks are, you know, they are definitely increasing in size and scope as from what I can, from what we can see. Well, I mean, Rahul, uh, uh, Mehul, sorry, Mehul. Um, you know, you've also got the one. Did you see the thing where the the ransomware gang offered a million dollars to this person, if or or this group, if you bring ransomware into your company, we'll give you a million dollars out of what we take. And so they're, they're getting a little more aggressive, shall we say? <laughs> I mean, the the tactics itself. I mean, uh, I mean, I've not seen that particular report, but I've seen you know the tactics. Um, ransomware attackers are using it are also changing. So previously they would come in and break into systems, encrypt the hardware and demand the money, right? So organizations started to go report to FBI or some other security organizations. And then they changed the tactic and they said, well, if you if you contact the police or do something, we're going to we are going to uh, reveal parts of your information to, uh, and uh, and you know expose your customer sensitive data. Um, uh, or post it on the internet. So I've seen like the, even the tactics have changed for ransomware attackers before. So you provided a really good example. One million dollars is a lot, but I've also seen um, the, the ransomware distributors using different um, tactics to extract the ransom uh, from from the victims uh, in the last year or so. Well, I mean, there's, okay, so when ransomware started, you could actually get customer support. They actually had tech support lines set up. So you could get, oh, well, I can't use the decryption key. All right, hang on, let me log into your system. 
how? Oh, did I forget to tell you? We still have access. Don't worry about it. We'll fix it on the way out. And they would log in and they would decrypt your files for you and then fix the bug on the way out because they got their money from you. They were very professional. I mean, I'm not saying they were nice people, but they were at least very professional about it. Now you have ransomware that, uh, is it not Petya that doesn't decrypt no matter what you, it's just, it's encrypted and we just want you to send us the money. Okay. And so it's, that, it's, it's changed drastically. That. I mean, this has essentially become like an uh, like a very professional operation. You know, we recently uh, the Conti ransomware came up. It has become a ransomware as a service. I mean, they you know they provide the infrastructure uh, for you to break into organizations, and they pro probably collect twenty or thirty percent of the ransom, um, and then they leave the rest to the people who are trying to break in and. Uh, in fact, these systems. So this is, I mean, Conti is a great example of ransomware be becoming almost like a professionally run organization where they bring yeah. in and they start to offer the infrastructure. You know, they have their Tor networks, they have their uh, command and control servers. Um, you just tap into that network and um, demand ransom from uh, organizations that are victims. Yeah, and I, I think the big concern here, like where we've seen it grown to, I think in the early days, ransomware, you know, was an opportunistic thing, you know, and they, they'd set up uh, watering hole attacks or send out phishing attacks and things like that just to get kind of initial access to, to networks and things like that. Or they would target individual computers, you know, for, for 500 bucks or something like that, you know, and what we've kind of evolved to look more like pen tests. You know, the way they get in, the way they pivot, the way they use Active Directory, you know, to get access to uh, more systems in the organization. And ransomware is is really like step 17 in this process. And what we're, you know, I want to talk a bit about today is how we can disrupt that process uh, potentially or, or prevent it from getting that far, uh, you know, in, in some of the earlier steps by uh, closing up some vulnerabilities they might use or, or um you know, shutting down some attack surface, you know, that they commonly use. Because we also have some really good data on how they do all this stuff now. You know, MITRE's published a bunch of stuff on it. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, individual security vendors have published uh, very specific details on exactly what vulnerabilities they're using, um, you know, how they're jumping from step to step, how they're getting, you know, that initial access to the network. Um, and the other interesting thing is, you know, a lot of times you think of a single crew doing all of these steps, but really even that's broken out, you know, to where somebody gets that initial access, sells that initial access to somebody else. Then they get in, they do the kind of pen test portion where they pivot around, they, you know, maybe deploy the ransomware and, and maybe the data that they exfiltrate off the network, they don't sell, they hand to yet another party uh, to actually sure. sell that data. Yeah, and you know, you know, we, we, I mean, at Collis, we've been looking at this, uh, this aspect of how do, how, how, how can organizations limit their exposure uh, to ransomware attacks? And to understand this better, one thing organizations need to realize is, you know, they're not using a lot of sophisticated techniques. Uh, we looked at the data, and it boils down to three. You know, like if you look at all the infection vectors that they typically use to break into our infect system, they, they come down to three key infection vectors. One is obviously the top one is RDP, uh, remote desktop uh, protocol enabled uh, on uh, on your internet facing assets. 
uh, you know you you made a brief reference to it if they cannot break into rdp they can actually buy access to rdp uh, i was looking at some numbers and you can buy access to rdp systems for like 3 dollars a pop right so if uh, if uh, they are not able to break into rdp systems they can buy credentials for rdp systems so that's like a number number one uh, infection vector to break in the second thing that we see consistently is uh, phishing attacks uh, send this you know they usually send out a very innocuous looking email click on it boom you're done like you know you know leverage client side vulnerabilities in browsers um to own the systems and the last one is just just basic uh, software vulnerabilities in internet facing assets like the ssl vpns are a really good um uh, target for um, for ransomware attackers and you know if we start to understand that these are these are the these are the common vectors that our ransomware attackers and distributors are using organizations would be in a much better shape to prevent uh, uh, prevent attacks uh, from Uh, ransomware you know there there is a famous quote which is well known which is a, a, uh, what is it an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure oh, a pound think, of cure yeah yeah and i think the ransomware um story i mean in the based on the attacks we're seeing um you know prevention is uh prevention is is definitely better than cure because by the time they have attacked your system you, you know we've seen a lot of vendors coming in and saying Oh well, we can you know we can stop ransomware attacks, we can stop the propagation and so on. But you know the fact that they're already in that defeats the purpose. You could take some actions on your end to take some preventative uh, steps so that the the basic infection and the eventual propagation could be limited or stopped. But has yeah, quick, hasn't this always been hasn't Go this ahead, always I, been the same? recommendations that we've been giving like there's nothing new here from a security standpoint like secure your rdp put multi factor out there have good passwords prevent password spraying watch for breaches stop lateral movement have different exactly. local administrator passwords like these are things that have been harped on for multiple decades the fact that ransomware is leveraging them I think speaks more to the fact that we're not learning our lesson around the fundamentals and we're trying to put blinky boxes around a problem that should be solvable and should be solved in today's threat landscape I, and security maturity I, for I, most of the people more I mean my my sense is ransomware is essentially monetization of poor cyber hygiene so if you if you do if you do the basic cyber hygiene hey, wait say that uh, again that was beautiful the way that you said that Um I, I don't know Mo- monetization <laughs> of of poor ransomware security hygiene is, is that how you said it monetization Ron- yeah, is, is the monetization of poor of poor cyber Sorry. hygiene and right. you know like Tyler said these these are not super complicated steps you know the 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 things that have been said over and over again you know make sure you understand where your assets are make sure which what assets are exposed to the internet are there assets exposed to the internet with vulnerabilities on them uh, if there are you know prioritize them patch them you know make sure you have backups make sure you have antivirus software installed and none of this is like rocket science if you do cyber if you follow the basic steps of cyber hygiene really well um uh I'm not, I I don't want to say that you can stop ransomware attacks but it can at least prevent the rapid spread of ransomware attacks once it gets in if you have the basic security controls in place for example if you have rdp configured securely if you have your macros disabled or you have least privilege on your accounts and so on it definitely helps uh, reduce the spread of ransomware um, attacks 
So if I can yeah, jump in what? with my question. Yeah, go yeah. ahead, Jeff. Um, I wanted to go back, Adrian, to, I'm sorry, Mayhul, when you were, uh, you know, sort of describing the, the three or four different vectors that you see, um, just as a curiosity, uh, you know, when you said, you know, obviously there's a lot of organizations out there that are falling victim to phishing attacks. Could you expand a little bit on they click on the attachment and it's all over? You know, are there typical uh, things that are happening at that point? And is it helpful for people to understand, uh, you know, what are the three or five, uh, you know, methods or techniques that are typically happening once somebody clicks on the attachment? Yeah, so what, I, what I've seen is uh, a, a very innocuous email will come in and, you know, and, and you click on it, it installs some kind of a remote access tool. And once it's, in, you know, and th that usually ends up exploiting a very well-known vulnerability. So it comes in, installs a remote access tool, and then once it's installed, it looks for systems around uh, that system if uh, if there are vulnerable systems. They, I mean, um, uh, you know, one common malware is ClickBot, and ClickBot uses uh, the eternal blue and proxy log, uh, not proxy log, on the eternal blue vulnerabilities uh, to propagate itself within the network. So these are very common, uh, you know, uh, next steps that happen as soon as you click in, the remote access tool is installed. Uh, it starts to send, you know, there are some there are some tools that will start to record your uh, key, uh, you know, your keyboard, uh, send in the instructions uh, over to a command and control center, um, try to break into other systems that are adjacent to your network and basically try to own the system. So those are basic things you could do. I mean, you know, we talk about training uh, all the time. Don't click on uh, attachments that you are, uh, you know, that are not sent by all, you know, uh, legitimate people or don't click on links that you don't know. But these things continue to happen every day and <laughs> ransomware is the name of the game today. So so let me ask you a, a um, disruptive question. Um, I would, you know, if, if we go on the premise that a lot of these ransomware attacks are somehow exploiting known vulnerabilities, and you happen to yeah. work for an organization that is, uh, you know, promoting tools to find these vulnerabilities. Um, you know, what what degree is Qualys trying to come up with a new way of, uh, you know, detecting and preventing ransomware attacks versus encouraging your customers to simply patch the crap that you've been finding already for them, you know, with their with their Qualys scan engine, uh, you know, for years and years. And, you know, wh where's the balance between, you know, we've been telling you the answers all along. Why don't you just fix the daggone things versus we need to come up with a new way and clever and sexy and way of saying we, we've solved the ransomware Exercise problem. Exercise and eat right. <laughs> Exercise and eat right. Yeah, I don't do that. Uh, that's a that's a great question, and you know we we have been looking at this ransomware issue on our end as well. Uh, our researchers were looking at it um, over the last, I would say, a year or so. And what one thing we realized is, obviously, there are hundreds of thousands of vulnerabilities. Not all of them are vulnerabilities that are. Um, exploited by ransomware based on, you know, we did an in-depth analysis uh, earlier this year. Uh, our researchers looked into it. What they found was if you go back maybe five or 10 years um, and you look at all the major ransomwares like Bad Rabbit, WannaCry, Server, Lucky, Dark Kingdom, um, Black, 
Conga, whatever it is. I mean, there are so many of them. So we went back and we uh, we looked at all these major uh, ransomware families or ransomware distributors. What we found out was uh, they're not they're not using uh, zero days uh, to break in. They are using very well known vulnerabilities. In fact, the number of vulnerabilities they typically end up using is around 110 CVEs. So we looked at it. We looked at uh, all the ransomware-related uh, vulnerabilities that are used to break in, and that is about 110 CVEs. Not a lot, and lo- a lot of these are uh, five years old, eight years old. You know, it goes back to MS 17010. It goes back to M- uh, there are some vulnerabilities for, from 2015 and 2013, and they continue to have uh, success uh, exploiting these vulnerabilities. So, so college's point of view is. Um, you know, again, going back to the prevention side of things, before you can do anything about it, you need to have visibility into your ransomware exposure. Like how, you know, if you are, if you have hundreds of thousands of vulnerabilities, you know, from a visibility perspective, which vulnerabilities do I need to prioritize? And Collis has done some really good work on on that. From in terms of giving visibility to our uh, to our customers, hey, by the way, these are these are the vulnerabilities that are leveraged by uh, by ransomware, and um, uh, you know, if, as part of your prioritization process, patching process, make sure these are already already uh, patched. And the second thing you know, we are doing is um, we are also um, we're taking a lot of guidance from really good organizations that are out there, like you know, CISA and NIST. They have been putting out some best practice guidelines on uh, the basic things that you need to do as part of your cyber hygiene. You know, make sure RDP is configured properly. Uh, you know, fire out your outbound firewall rules are configured properly, and so on. So we've taken that information as well. And um, basically mapped it into technical controls that customers can then assess their configuration of their assets to to start to operationalize a security program around preventing uh, ransomware. Um, and uh, you know we believe that you know prevention is definitely better than cure, and uh, giving customers the visibility would go a long way in in terms of protecting them from ransomware related attacks. Yeah. And, and yeah, the CISA, you know, you know, we've got benchmarks from, um, you know, CIS, um, you know, again, you know, like it's, re- it's really boring. Like the answer to, <laughs> to this question of ransomware <laughs> is, is just, is, you know, people are probably tired of hearing it, but, um, but I, you know, I think part of it is that the basics though they are basics or fundamentals, whatever you want to call them, yeah. you know, just because we call them fundamental and, and basics doesn't mean they're easy. You know, it's, it, you can make all kinds of uh, connections to things like martial arts, you know, like, like, um, you know, spending, spending years and years just learning basics, you know, kind of building your way up there. Um, uh, and it's, Adrian, it's, it's, the what is it's basic? the same, it's fundamental. <laughs> it's it's hard Can to harden stuff. Basics, it's hard please, to lock stuff down. I keep hearing that. Yeah. So so I mean, you know, just turning off services you're not using. Yeah, uh, I think over fifty percent of ransomware out there uses the actual built-in Windows API uh, to generate those keys that they use to encrypt your data. They're using your system to do that. Researchers have actually built software applications that just record all the keys created within that Windows system. 
And, and most of the time, they're able to decrypt the data themselves because the ransomware is generating it on that system. So, so if I you know, turn if, off the services that aren't being used, I'm done. That's the fundamentals. No. No, <laughs> no, of course not. No, that's why we're talking about CISA, uh, you know, and, and CIS benchmarks. Like if you've read through the CIS benchmark for Windows, you know, that that's that's a long, painful process to go through there and choo- pick and choose what you're going to use, what you're not going to use. If, if you follow the CIS benchmarks 100%, you have a non-working system, you know, so yeah. it, it's... That's the hard part is figuring out, you know, okay, what can we turn off? What, what can't we, you know, oh, something broke. You know, it's just a constant process of, of tweaking things and, and reducing that attack surface. And that's one thing we have seen as well. There is no shortage. There is no shortage of um, best practice guides. There is no shortage of PDF guides on how to protect yourself from ransomware. I think the thing that is lacking is, okay, what does this mean to me? Which specific control do I need to apply? What is the thing I need to do on my system? I'm already logged into, what, what is this thing that I need to disable? Uh, I think there is there is an opportunity for vendors to come in and basically translate that into something that is much more technical that, so that organizations can take steps around it rather than you know maintain backups and you know do training and, and you know disable or you know harden your rdp and so on um that is one area i think um, security vendors need to do a better job in making this more actionable so that uh customers and organizations don't have to deal with hundreds of what you're of what you're implying mayhole is that is that uh you know I forget your exact phrasing, you know, basic cybersecurity hygiene isn't fun, isn't sexy, is boring, uh, and nobody likes to do it. Is that the main reason why companies don't do it? No, I, I don't know why they don't do it. I, I was looking at some of the numbers, like, you know, Collis has, uh, we've been looking at some of the numbers in terms of just the patch cadence. Um, and uh, the average time to patch vulnerabilities is 194 days. Yeah, based on the research that we've done. And I, I'm like, which in which world is this acceptable? Like in which world yeah. is 194 days to patch a vulnerability acceptable? And that's the that's the average. So there are, there are situations where it is way higher uh, than 194 days. Um, so I don't know. I, mean, I don't know why organizations are not uh, uh, patching more frequently or doing the, the basic steps of cyber hygiene, taking them more seriously. Uh, part of the problem could be the tools are not uh, conducive to do that. Uh, there are some uh, certain aspects that could be automated and should be automated, um, but maybe the tools are just not there yet. And uh, that's uh, that's a gap that uh, security vendors need to fill. Uh, to I, think the one I, I have an I have an idea for for you and your your uh, product marketing team at Qualys. You should set up your your Qualys engine to if it's if it's finding vulnerabilities that are old or they've previously found on previous scans, lock the damn tool and tell the customer we'll unlock your tool once you've actually patched this vulnerability. <laughs> so so, so internally, just to be clear, Jeff, you've just stated that they should turn Qualys into <laughs> ransomware. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. but, you know. ransomware is a vendor. Like, there's a difference. Let's be real here. I think. Lesson. I mean, you know, you could wait 30 seconds and say, "Just kidding." Here's the rest of your report. But you bring up an so, interesting point. We actually uh, introduced a capability not too long ago this week, where 
uh, we automatically patch vulnerabilities uh, organizations. They can come in and define the criteria for um, for vulnerabilities. Like you know, you know, I was talking about phishing attacks, right? They usually use uh, client software to um, to this client side vulnerabilities to uh, ex uh, to break into systems. Um, you know, you don't need a ServiceNow ticket to patch a Firefox vulnerability or a Google Chrome vulnerability. These are things that can be easily patched with. Uh, without any interaction with the IT teams, you know, patching is in, in some ways patching is difficult because you need to get the right approvals, you need to have the change management right. in place, and so on and so forth. Change so there are certain control. applications that could be just go ahead and patch it. I mean, you don't have to wait for um, you don't have to wait for uh, approvals and whatnot. So you know, we that's so, that's, so we don't actually lock the systems, but we do go ahead and patch the systems. Uh, if you define the right criteria. So in fact, like you, you could in college, you could now say, you know, ransomware, patch any vulnerability that is related to ransomware and boom, just go and patch it for you um, in the next uh, patch cycle. And, and Mayhul, you, you make a good point there, you know, that I want to expand on a little bit, you know, talking to organizations, you know, that I think are a little bit um, forward thinking here, or at least trying new things. Um, you, you know, I talk to people where their patching process is is measured in terms of of hours, um, and and they they are going full auto on releasing patches. They're not testing them first. Um, they're automating it as much as possible because to them, you know, they they'd rather deal with a patch breaking something, you know, than not patching something and, and having a cyber incident. Uh, so. You know, we, we are seeing people doing that, you know, that, that are saying, you know, let's flip this risk. You know, instead of waiting for a missing patch or a vulnerability to show up on a scan report, we see organizations that don't really use vulnerability scanning at all. You know, maybe once a quarter to catch stuff that falls through the cracks because they've redone their patching process to where it's as automated as possible, uh, you know, across the board. That's a very yeah, small agree on the on the uh, you know, but there is always going to be some systems that require some kind of change control. You know, the servers, the databases, you know, the networking devices, and so on. So I, I believe those would continue to have some kind of handholding that will be required. But there is a large body sure. of applications that should not that should not require a scan report to tell you these are the vulnerabilities you need to patch. I mean, you just set them on auto update or, uh, you know, like in, in our case, you know, set it to zero touch patching and we'll go and patch it for you. And uh, before yeah. the security guys come knocking, you know, the IT guys are ahead of the security guys fixing things left and right. Yeah, I'm going to back up my across the board statement. You're right. You know, servers, uh, you know, especially servers that are, uh, you know, not like cloud instances or something like that, um, you know, are going to be handled differently than workstations. But yeah, certainly workstations, Firefox, Chrome patches, stuff like that, um, client side stuff, you know, the, the risk is much lower to automatically patch at that level, which is why Microsoft today gets away with automatically rebooting people's systems, you know, to, to apply patches. That was a, that was a big change. That's also a very small subset of of the threats and ransomware, uh, at least for the new tactics. There's yes. people that are operating and changing that tactic to you know the phishing, to bribery, uh, to the to the common ex exploitation, using exploitation even in pen testing. I mean, most of us don't do it, and we hardly ever do it. So, what is the value return on investment for that patching uh, as a priority? Like again, we go back to that getting the basics right. That's, like you said, very difficult because we're running into the problem of 
everything is getting more complex, everything's starting to interconnect. And an operations team uh, doesn't get promoted by rebooting and uh, and patching things. They get promoted by having uptime and doing things and keeping sure. the business making money. And so security is not a priority. So that comes back to the main point of we have to shift the priority and the cultural mindset of why is it bad to have the patches applied 190 days later. These are the things that really start to matter and getting the basics right uh, those are part of uh, part of the general hygiene. We've had those for 20 years, and it's not changed the industry. In fact, it's gotten easier with more technology, more capability, more visibility. All of those things have not helped that. So that means that you know our adversaries aren't getting better. They're using low-end techniques, using all the same things. That means that we really have to adjust the one thing that we can control, which is shift the culture. Otherwise, this is not going to get fixed. I, I couldn't agree yeah. more. Yeah, if security is not a priority, uh, you know, and I've told a lot of people who have complained working for an organization, you know, that they just can't change hearts and minds. You know, I, I don't know what you can do. You know, if, if, if it's not a priority at that level, you know, that's just tough to deal with. Um, but yeah, to your point, Tyler, uh, you know, I think in the DBIR, uh, you know, the, the latest one, it's, it's 3%, uh, you know, in, in the database of all the stuff they get in where, where they see exploits being used at all three percent of of breaches and um but the thing is it you know three percent still equates to like thousands uh, of occasions so you can't ignore it you still have to patch you know if there's low-hanging fruit there you know if you have rdp hanging out with a vulnerability on it they'll use it you know they have automated scripts running that will just automatically exploit it and and get that foothold in, in the door or or use cred stuffing or you know uh, all these different techniques that are just low hanging fruit but um so you still have but yeah low hanging fruit stuff like vulnerability management password hygiene like if you have a bad password it's going to get hopped so you still have to do those those things that are necessary such as vulnerability management and and exploit patching but priority again we go back to like how do we how do we make bigger leaps in a quicker shorter time frame with less uh help to do that because yeah we exactly. are at a and i think that's it like you see organizations spending 70 80 percent of their time on vulnerability management and patching and that's not a good use uh, of that security staff or their time you know I, th I think that needs to be you know the amount of time they're spending each week uh, on it, they they shouldn't have multiple meetings a week on it. They shouldn't be managing spreadsheets and things like that. Like that's the stuff that needs to go away and just minimize the labor spent on that stuff, so that they can then focus on, uh, you know, on on actually hardening and improving security of systems. What is this improving security you speak of? Come on, we're not here to improve security. We're here to yell, name, shame, be nasty to people. That's what we're here for, man. <laughs> or, yeah, we could help people, too. Something like that. Whatever. No, I mean, You're that's right, where testing got a bad name, right? Like, that's initially yeah. the problem with red teaming, with pen testing, with all the offensive space here. We've not spent enough time empathizing, sympathizing, looking at business risk, identifying and helping. We've put our ego in front of all that and done cool, sexy shit for, for a while that, yeah, used to make a difference. But, uh, one, we've lost our edge. Two, we've gotten to the point where we're doing... Uh, stuff because of our ego and we want to prove the latest, coolest, stealthiest thing. That's not helping any customers. That's not proving I've business. Literally, not I've literally seen pen testers extend uh, an assessment just to get an exploit working. 
just because oh, no, they, no, they I, felt I, like I, with I, another four or eight hours they could get that exploit working. Zero value to to, to the customer, you know, but it was just important to them. Well, come on. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to back you up just a step because let's be clear here for how many years, if you didn't get in, you weren't finishing the pen test. You were failing as a pen tester. And now it's in the last but few years, it's become much mind, more healthy. Josh. What's that? Mostly in your mind. I mean, if you followed a methodology in the company, was actually fairly decent. No, there's a I lot see. of companies that for many years, if you didn't get in, you were a failure. I call those pen tests puppy mills then. Like the maturity well, of the offensive space has grown so much and our ego has had to step down so that we can actually help bring big customers and do big things in a security maturity model. There's no room for that. And those companies stand out very, very clearly, right? Like we have no, to adapt I, to this where we're providing value. Tyler, I'm not, I'm not arguing with you. I agree with you. You're absolutely oh, no, correct. I, I know you are. <laughs> But my point is, and, and, and to be honest, any pen tester that feels that if they don't get in, they're failing, no offense, but grow up a little bit because realistically, there's times when we need to tell our customers, hey, you're doing a really good job. I'm very impressed. Let me show you the parts where I think you're the weakest. Let me show you the parts where I think you're the, the strongest. But I'm very impressed with how strong your security is and how things are going. It, it, it is time to understand that our job is not to break in and, and you know, strut in, you know, I broke in, I'm domain admin now, drop the mic and walk out. You know, our part is to work with them to make sure that they understand where they're doing really well, where maybe they can improve things that you think, hey, you know, th this could be better and blah, blah, blah. And, and then it's time to be part of the defense as well as representing the offensive actors. Well, that requires us to keep our edge and make sure we got that mindset set up properly and reframing the, the problem, right? If in a pen test, if, if you guys give me full carte blanche to go do whatever I want, I'm always going to get in. I'm going to get in fishing. I'm going to get in physically. Like, I don't care how good your security is. Like, enough time and money, I will get in. So, really reframing that. So, what's the value, the return on investment? How are we going to help the company and the business and, and adjust this so that we're making security progress in a meaningful manner with the time and budget that we have to operate in, which is usually very small. So, that is kind of the shift in mindset where they always get in. Like that's just time, money, and resource. Like we'll do that, but that's not useful. And I think we've gotten past that. And you're you're right on. We have to change that for the customer and reframe that for the executives and get everybody on the same communication page so that they understand what makes a difference against ransomware. Things like uh, the reports and, and information out there is there's plethoras of information on how to do this. We're having to show the business. Uh, return on investment and the places to prioritize because there's not enough time, money, or people to do this in a short amount of time to get these companies up to snuff. It's not a not a matter of information or or even companies to come and do the the adversary side. It's the problem of how do we get this done quickly in a meaningful manner. Well, yeah, so I was actually I was a guest on Paul Security Weekly a couple of years ago, and and the point I was making back then was that. You know, I was finding that people didn't necessarily need somebody to come in and do a pen test to prove. I mean, in some cases, you, you did need that light bulb moment for somebody to say, okay, yeah, I, I admit there's a problem because you were able to do some stuff. But in most cases, they knew stuff was wrong. That's not the help that they needed. Uh, what they needed, what they couldn't figure out was how to fix it. You know, given the resources that they have, the skills and the people they have, 
um, you know, how to, how to fix that at, at a root level, at a fundamental level. You know, so again, what? like every breach that we, you know, that, that I take a look at, um, it's not a lack of technical controls uh, that kills them in that breach. It, it's bad process in, in, in most cases. So, oh man, I could kiss uh, to you. Dovetail, to dovetail what you were saying, Adrian, you're, you're sort of in the same uh, train of thought that I was having. To, you know, to take this back to Mayhul and Qualys, who's representing, uh, and, and in no way, shape, or form, I'm picking on Qualys, but uh, you know, as a as a tool that's very often considered by many of my clients to be, in my mind, in the category of one of those blinky light boxes that. You know, this is something that you got to have, got to use. You know, uh, you know, when I started pen testing many, many years ago, yes, we absolutely were trying to prove the point. You need to be secure. Look at all these different ways that we're getting in. Look at all these vulnerabilities, uh, you know, in process and procedure, as well as technical vulnerabilities, which in those days, frankly, they were more features than vulnerabilities. Um, but the, you know, the end game was, uh, you know, the pen test is what's getting the ball rolling. Uh, and, and to some degree, we've evolved so that the pen testing pen testing has become a vital part of, you know, measuring the effectiveness of your security program, at least in theory. Yet, it's very often relied upon, as are many scan engines for vulnerability discovery and finding out, well, we think we're okay, tell us what's wrong. You know, enter the pen test report, enter the vulnerability scan report. Um, how do we get everybody beyond the notion that, you know, you've got the tools in place. You've got this kick-ass vulnerability scan engine that's that even now today is offering self-healing. You know, we'll fix the vulnerabilities when we find them. So even more, you don't have to think about it. But we're sitting here talking about how companies more and more need to think about it and not rely on the automation. I feel like we're we're spun around the axle somehow and somehow we need to step back and you know customers of Qualys they have a tool already that should be able to identify all the things wrong in their network that are going to make a ransomware attack work. Right. How do we get how do we get companies so beyond one, that? One unfortunate byproduct of ransomware attacks is that now, you know, these kind of things have board level visibility. I mean, I usually getting on calls with the CISOs and the executives of the of large organizations asking for in some cases, hourly updates on some of the major vulnerabilities that were breaking out. I remember recently, I think it was OmiGuard or uh, there was some vulnerability in Azure. And within, uh, as soon as that vulnerability was disclosed, I think within three hours, we were on a call with the customer explaining our detection logic, how we are going to cover, uh, you know, make sure all the vulnerable assets are um, are, are detected by callers and so on. So. Uh, because of these kind of attacks, I mean, it's unfortunate, but this is what has taken. This has this is what it takes to get the level of uh, visibility at a board level, and you know, I shouldn't be glad, but I'm glad because now it is a big deal. I mean, organizations are paying attention to these vulnerabilities, and you know, now the expectation from our customers. I mean, I remember you know, when I started in vulnerability management, our usual scan cycles were once in a quarter, once in a month, once in two weeks, and so on. And now it is not uncommon 
for customers to demand near real time visibility into the vulnerabilities uh, on their assets especially those that are uh, internet facing so it's it's not a good thing but you know these attacks are actually raised awareness at the higher levels to make sure these are prioritized and they are funded the right way and uh, you know uh, the security teams are taking the right steps and using the right tools to make sure they get the visibility so but you're yeah, you're yeah, highlighting yeah. hold on hold on you're highlighting one of the points i'm trying to make mehul in that you're <laughs> and again i'm not picking on qualis but generally speaking, most companies think of vulnerability scanners as sort of where they start with vulnerability management. I'm going to throw out, I'm going to throw the PCI flag in here right now, where vulnerability scanning in PCI is happening way down in all the security stuff. The vulnerability management portion of PCI is where you have you know, come up with your own risk ranking for vulnerabilities, have a patch program where you're patching critical patch, you know, patches that address critical vulnerabilities within 30 days of release, um, you know, secure code development, change management, change procedures, uh, monitoring your, you know, the, the, the bulletin boards and the vendor notices for when vulnerability information and the subsequent patch information is released. There's, and I'm not saying PCI is right, but conceptually as a, as a, you know, if there's a, if there's a, a process, a cyclical process, a nature to this thing that we're calling security, uh, vulnerability scanning is not a part of it. It's an after the fact, how'd you do? And did you catch everything? Exactly. And Thank it's you, a Jeff. safety net. Yeah, yeah. If if the first place you find out that you're missing a patch is on a vulnerability scan, you're doing patch management wrong. You're doing something opinion. wrong. Ex yes, yes. Drink PCI and all that kind of stuff. And, and and to make you know to to <laughs> harp on another point. Yeah, I just I refilled my my glass of wine after you <laughs> you started invoking the PCI. But yeah, um, I go hard when it comes to PCI. It, it, to highlight another thing that you were saying, Jeff, is that um, another thing that we see when we study breaches is that, you know, the companies uh, and people who don't get breached is companies who do really well don't have a ton of tools. They have a small number of tools that do a lot of things, uh, but they use like 90, 95% of what those tools do, you know, versus you see companies with like 50 security tools and, and like half of them nobody's really managing or understanding because it's just too much overhead to, to manage that many, that many systems. So it's, it's, and I've heard this from uh, engineers and, and product managers at vendors, you know, bemoaning the fact that their, their customers don't use some of their, you know, most impressive and, and useful and effective features. And, and, and I think that's, that's a challenge where, you know, we've got billions in marketing you know, telling us to buy the latest new shiny thing. And, and a lot of people fall for it and do it. And, and in some cases, we see people buying stuff, features that they already own and existing products that they own. They just haven't taken the time to explore those products and what they can do with them. And to add to that, I believe that vendors, uh, especially of things like EDR products, are very, very good at finding, detecting, uh, stopping uh, offensive tools that were designed for pen tests. A lot of the capabilities are built around uh, the tech, the detection of pen test tools or open source offensive tools, call it what you will. There's a lot less capability. If you look at a lot of the ransomware and the phishing kits, the angler kits, uh, any of the ransomware groups, 
out of the box, they're using cryptors, they're using packers, they're able to bypass all the EDR uh, when it when it's pretty hard to do that with most of the pen test tools. So does that mean that we're spending so much time and vendors are focusing so much on uh, showing that they're doing good security and able to stop uh, adversary simulation by catching pen tests, or are we actually focusing on catching the bad guys? Like, there's a problem here. There's a there's a discrepancy in the gap. So the funny thing is, Haroon Mir gave this great talk um, in 2011, I believe it was called uh, "Penetration Testing Considered Harmful." And one of the key points he was making there was that pen testers weren't emulating adversaries; they were emulating other pen testers. So there's this whole game of like one up upmanship uh, within pen testing, and we've kind of ironically come to this place where, when we look at what ransom, what so you know, separating from ransomware, these actual extortion campaigns where ransomware is just one step of a multi-step process. You know, they're they're actually ransomware crews are hiring pen testers, you know, that have gone out and and gone through pen tester training and gotten pen tester certs. And, and to the point to where they're literally using the same tools as pen testers. Like we're seeing well, cobalt I mean, they, strike show up more and more in these tests. So we've kind of come strike, around exactly. full circle where, where now that talk that Haroon was giving, you know, now attackers are emulating pen testers because they are pen testers in some cases because they can make 10 times as much, uh, you know, hacking for the bad guys. Well, and the, 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 uh, uh, Allegory is not the right word. Uh, the, it's similar to the way so much of our educational system is now teaching children to pass the, the standardized tests, or what we commonly refer to teaching to the test. Right. I, I mean, it's it's the same exact, exact it, it's, thing. It's a really on. good analogy, yeah. Analogy, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, that's also a problem that like we can't overcome. Like Offensive tools are needed. We need the off-the-shelf off if you're doing pen tests, if you're doing offensive work. Like these tools have to be a capability. We just need the the vendors to not focus on them quite as much, because there's tools out there that these groups are using that are not pen test tools. Like there are a lot using Cobalt Strike. There's a lot using some of those. They have kits though. They have th that are doing different things. But the fact that they're detecting those, like as as pen testers, we really need to be the on the same side and working with these vendors and not having them detect the tools and work on the behavior more we're at a precipice where you're right we we can't go and use malware we're not going to go and bring malware into a customer's environment and use it for testing so we have to have these offensive tools this is part of the game but we need to stop focusing so much on detecting individual tools and detect capabilities and work on the fundamentals that actually stop all the tools by doing good cyber hygiene Right, like that's back to the same point of getting the fundamentals right. Which, if we can take it back to Mayhul, <laughs> you know, I, I I would think that Qualys, as a as a company that's putting out products that you know by design find the problems that companies are going to fall prey to ransomware. Uh, I would think it's is equally, if not important, to try to, you know, whether it's better training or better marketing or better educational awareness, uh, you know, training your users to make sure they're using the tools well, convince them, no, th these results really are real. You really need to do something about them. But I would think trying to make sure they're getting the use out of the existing products is is equally as important as if not more important than coming up with a, a feature that you can label as, you know, here's the ransomware button, push this and, you know, we'll find all the ransomware stuff and, and help you prevent it. That's just my take. 
help but i mean we have added our share of ransomware buttons in the product uh and uh i think we'll have to do it as as these attacks increase but one thing i will say is we're also investing in you know like you said jeff we're also investing in just making uh the workflow simpler so that customers can better understand the capabilities of the product and and use them you know these are capabilities that are built in year two years now and to basically make better use of the products and the capabilities that have been shipped in the callus uh cloud platform I mean, we have over uh, 20 applications on the cloud platform at today you know we started with vm we added policy compliance we added file integrity monitoring edr um patch management and many more and so one of the challenges we now have is like how do we get it to the point where customers can use these capabilities that we are shipping and usually this is just the single agent so one thing that we consciously uh, done is to not force uh, you know organizations to deploy different set of solutions for different use cases so in our case you're <laughs> using the same agent to satisfy one or more use cases like vm patch management policy compliance and so on and uh, we are actually investing time to make sure that uh, our workflows are simple and easy to use so that they can they can leverage the capabilities that are already in the in the platform i imagine that's a huge customer success challenge mehul uh, to get people to use some of those new features as as you add them in exactly and you know and we cannot just add them and we have to prompt them we have to guide them they need to understand what is the what is the value for them if, because you know, even if you add a workflow which is 2 or 3 minutes long they still before they can invest that time they need to know what is the outcome that i'm going to get by following this workflow so that is something that falls on the product marketers and product managers to do a good job with their existing products but that's something we have started to invest our time in basically educate our customers what capabilities exist in the platform so that workflow piece you you talked about is that like a soar type uh product within the platform so you know, th- that is a bit far further out this is just using our existing product <clears throat> like you know basic help guides on um oh. how to use the product you know giving prompt okay now you know you, now that you've created a policy you now click here and now you can you know select these options and this is how you prioritize this is how you run a scan and so on so that is all baked into the product historically these kind of things have been um put in a documentation or a pdf uh, file um, for customers to look at but i think more and more now vendors are realizing we should be front and center in terms of uh, when the customer is using the product they sh- we should guide them into some of the things that are already possible so that they can use it as part of their jobs yeah yeah no i think that's a really good point um is there any one particular feature or um you know you're talking about all the different applications within the platform that you feel is is most underutilized that that uh, customers need to to take a closer look at i think i mean the prioritization is definitely something uh, customers need to take a better look at i mean we continue to invest a lot of time in helping customers prioritize the right set of vulnerabilities i mean you know we are talking about ransomware uh today few years ago it was malware before that it was exploit kits before that it was 
you know, um, you know, exploits in the wild and exploit DB exploits and so on. So those things keep changing. And as the as the trends change, we also obviously adapt our product to uh, account for the industry changes. So we've invested a lot of time and, you know, we are, we are more capabilities coming into the platform, which will help customers better prioritize their vulnerabilities. Um, and that's definitely something is getting used, but I think customers can do a better job there rather than just relying on something like a CVSS score um, to prioritize the right set of vulnerabilities. I see, still see customers uh, and organizations use CVSS. You know, it's a good thing. It is, I think it has, um, it is time to, to bring in a better form of prioritization than CVSS. <laughs> I, what I heard is CVSS is dead. I, I think that's what you said, right? <laughs> CVSS has, the people have said CVSS is dead for years now. And you know, yeah. <laughs> everyone, they're worth their salt, continues to it, say it, CVSS it, is dead. It's, it's <laughs> part you, of that prioritization <laughs> algorithm, right? Like it's part of it. It is. And so well, yeah, it is part of it. It is not the prioritization. The way you look at it is, uh, it is a component of prioritization. It is not the entire prioritization. You know. <clears throat> In a simpler way, is you know, my view is CVSS is a uh, is a representation of the technical risk of the vulnerability, not necessarily the criticality of that vulnerability to your organization. Right. <clears throat> so CVSS needs to be factored in as part of your prioritization, but that doesn't need to be the is it, it isn't the holy grail people think it is. It is not the, the only thing right. you do for prioritization. You know, Mayhul, uh, version version three came out when I when you and I I think we're both still at Tenable, and I actually think version three of CVSS attempts to to take all the other things that we're talking about into account. I I think the problem the problem is you can't let a third bot third party arbitrarily you know set the scores and values for you because that's something that's it's personal. It's 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 unique for you, every you gotta organization. You got to use the temporal and environmental, right? Right. You know, so in, in that light, I don't think CVSS is dead. I think it's in, perhaps it's a little bit over overcomplicated, over intellectualized, but as a framework for telling an organization, here's the kind of things you should be thinking about in terms of prioritization that, you know, really are things that you need to decide. Don't let a tool tell you, um, you know, again, a PCI plug. PCI introduced this idea of prioritization back in, in 2010 uh, with uh, 1910. It was either 2000, 2010 or 2013. It was either the, I get my, you know, PCI was first uh, on 10. this thing. Yeah, I think wrong, it was 10. But I think, it, I think it was 10 with version two where they, they introduced the idea of come up with your own risk ranking. Yes. And base, yeah, and I, was base all your actions I was still using it. I was still a QSA then. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So this is not a new idea. It took it took the vendors a while to catch on, and and it certainly took my clients a, a while to catch on to. No, don't just use the CVSS score that's being published by right. whatever scan engine you're using. Actually, take a look at what it is and and how it's exploitable. And you know, is an internet-based attack really something you need to worry about if you're looking at a system that's 17 layers deep in your network? Exactly. Context not, is important. Notwithstanding what Tyler can do you do to you to get there. But you know, you yeah. know what I'm saying. I mean, one of the challenges with CVSS version three is um, not all I mean, it is obviously included in the recent vulnerabilities, I would say three or four years ago that have been published. But if you go back to older vulnerabilities, you know, 
pre, I guess, to 2015 or 2016, the CVSS3 score doesn't exist. So there are still a lot, there is still a large number of vulnerabilities that don't have a CVSS3 uh, score. The other challenge mm-hmm. I have, and, and, you know, I'm pretty sure every other vendor runs into this as well. Like, you know, I, know, I remember in, in, in my days at Tenable, we used to spend, I don't know, hours debating on how to rank and score a CVSS, you know, you know, which factors are included and so on. But then eventually NIST would come out and as part of the NVD database, it would have its own CVSS um, score. And then there would be always disputes with customer. And well, NIST is saying this is a 7.5. Why are you saying it's a 5.0? Um, so I think the best vendors have essentially given up and now say, you know, we'll go with whatever NVD has to say about the CVSS. Um, it's just too much back and forth in terms of agreeing and disagreeing on the CVSS scores. All right. So focus on uh, on vulnerability prioritization. Yeah, and, and, and it's there um, and it's uh, and, and you should use it. Mayhul, mm-hmm. thank you for joining us on, on Paul Security Weekly today. Hey, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure being here with all of you. Thank you. Good to see you again, Mayhul, as always. Same here. Bye. Make sure you visit securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys to learn more. And you can sign up for a free trial there. Pretty easy to sign up for. I've actually done it recently as we are testing Qualys in our labs right now. Stay tuned. Qualys has brought together vulnerability management and patch management, letting security teams discover vulnerabilities and apply patches immediately, all within a single unified app. Sign up for a free trial of Qualys VMDR, vulnerability management, detection, and response today at securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. Every 11 seconds, there's a new ransomware attack. Oil pipelines, universities, corporations, all paying millions of dollars. Barracuda says, don't pay the ransom. Before a ransomware attack occurs, train your teams to recognize an attack and use anti-phishing technology. Protect your applications and they can't get onto your network. Simple backup and restore solutions quickly recover your data without paying the ransom. Build your ransomware protection plan now by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. That's securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. Cybersecurity is about more than just technology. It's about how people behave with emails, data, and cloud applications that directly impacts your company's security posture. Security works best when it's ingrained in the culture of your organization. To learn how to build a security culture and transform your employees from targets into a strong line of defense, head to securityweekly.com forward slash proofpoint and visit their cybersecurity awareness center. Welcome back to Paul Security Weekly or Adrian Security Weekly. Join Security Weekly and Keeper Security for a webinar on October 21st to learn why zero knowledge encryption matters. Go to securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts to register for that one. If you missed any of our previously recorded webcasts or technical trainings, they are available for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com forward slash on demand. Also, Security Weekly Unlocked will be held in person this December 5th through 7th at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista. I can't wait for it. Uh, I haven't been out of the house since RSA 2020. I haven't left the house once. Keynotes from Alyssa Miller, John Strand, Leslie Carhart, and Dave Kennedy. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash unlock to register and check out our Rockstar lineup. Now, on to the Security Weekly News. 
I am looking forward to this. So I, I have, I don't know if you guys have already checked these out, but I've categorized things and labeled things and sorted things. I, I got very organized. You have way too much time in, in your day. so organized. You know, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> very organized. Uh, lots of you comments know, and stuff You didn't like color code them, so I'm really disappointed from that perspective. I, oh, I, I, I put in the request for that feature. Okay. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not a <laughs> wait, wait for, uh, Marcin to uh, to implement that feature in. <laughs> so Marcin. I see we're passing the buck like any good executive. Okay, good job, sir. I, I I've learned some things. It's it's on the roadmap. So so the first category of things I have is just there have been so many Microsoft things, and and these aren't all negative. These aren't all bad, but there have been some real interesting Microsoft Cloud Azure kind of uh, you know issues let's say over the last couple of weeks that have popped up and um and yeah yeah so one of them as your active directory you can brute force to your heart's content apparently uh if, if you use the right apis to do it so that's number three right. uh, so i had a point of parliamentary procedure issue with that that article i i mean i understand what they're saying but in my mind, brute forcing is always a possibility. Therefore, it's not technically a vulnerability, which I think somewhere in the article, Microsoft, some, you know, some division of yeah, Microsoft. You don't, you don't have to call it a vulnerability, but there's no mitigations for it. And there's apparently no visibility into it. Like they, they won't even tell you that it's going on. There, there's no right. easy way to tell that it's happening. Well, I think the vulnerability is that, and I think what they, you know, they sort of beat around the bush. They didn't come out and saying, but some some part of it is allowing you to do, you know, multiple guessing, and it's not bounded in any way, shape, or form. Exactly. Whereas, like PCI only lets you try six, you know, password attempts before you're supposed to lock the system <laughs> yeah. up for 30, 30 minutes at a minimum. Which you know, this this would not pass that requirement. Passes. Would not. It would not. I mean, it, it's. It's part of the it's part of the integration for Kerberos, like the single sign-on. We've got this kind of hybrid method that requires a ton of complexity, and you're right. Like brute forcing has always been kind of a thing. It is the endpoints at which we brute force. EWS has been a, a pain point for many years. We brute force against it because there's minimal visibility. OWA was the first one, and they've got visibility around it. There's lockouts. There's conditional access. Things you can do. EWS kind of the same thing. Uh, we're just starting to see a lot of these endpoints and APIs begin to be abused. I mean, federated services has been abused for a while, um, but there's means for Sentinel to discover them. There's ways that you can lock and, and get visibility and protect it. This is just going to be an ongoing thing because it is such a complex beast between Active Directory, Active, yeah. Active Directory, Federated yeah. Services, and Azure Active Directory, all different things. And there's different ways in which each of these connect and integrate uh, with inside of your environment and outside of your environment. I, I think you nailed it uh, there, Tyler. You know, the, the main issue with um, AD in general, you know, and now that AD is extended into Azure, is a number of different ways you can configure it and use it. And it, it's a complex beast. And uh, it, it's just going to be a lot of uh, legwork, a lot of labor, you know, to make sure you address all of this stuff because this can be mitigated. Um, you know, <laughs> in, in some ways, um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's just a challenge. I mean, to the point where, you know, it looks like Microsoft is overlooking and, and missing some of the stuff they, they've got, 
uh, so much going on with Azure. Well, okay, it's really so what, what could they do? Yeah, so they can just I mean, brute force to their heart's content and, and you know, find, find passwords, find working passwords, basically. Right. So, so if they just said lock it out after 30, uh, slow it down to, if you do 10, yeah. no, no entries until for, for 30 minutes, you yeah, know, there's whatever. Zero that mitigation. I mean, these are, sorry. Yeah. you you run into a problem because the, the endpoint that this one, this one directly applies to is a single sign on between auto log on for on-prem AD and the Azure AD. And so there's Kerberos tickets and SPNs that are utilizing these for synchronization and communication between the two domains. And so it's not necessarily a, a user account or, or right. a- It's not user-facing, uh, right, it's, Tyler? Yeah, it's an, it's an API that's using auto-login where you're requesting certain tickets across certain communication channels, and it's an entire process breakdown for each oh. of those for the synchronization across that. So it's not necessarily just username and password. It's an endpoint for uh, specific transport communication of Azure AD and um, on-prem AD. So maybe the ability you need is to lock down access control to it, not necessarily, uh, you know, the the rate rate limiting or something like that. Yeah, and some of that is because of how the client is accessing this single sign-on. They're utilizing the single sign-on token for the auto login capability to go through, pass through Azure AD to on-prem AD. And so there's a there's a lot of things you got multiple two different servers, two different premises for clients utilizing different tokens for auto login communication that's being passed to an endpoint uh, and providing that TGS and, and uh, ticket granting services. So it, I, it is I, a highly complex environment. And, and, a, and a good comment by Dimitri on, on Discord is that, you know, another big issue here is that you can't see it happening. You know, we, we do need logs yeah. for that kind of thing somewhere, you know, so that we can respond to it and, and at least manually do something about it. Well, if yeah. especially if you're not going to be able to 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 throttle it at all, limit limit it. And you know, from what I'm hearing, Tyler's saying, it, yeah, that's kind of problematic to limit it. Okay, so then, yeah, monitor it for ex shouldn't, excess usage. Shouldn't UEBA style stuff uh, spot this and alert on this? If Microsoft yeah, well, gives you the logs for it, yes. Yeah. So these aren't going to okay. be typical logs, right? In fact, there's not going to be logging per se for this because this is uh, this is essentially web requests across XML files to API endpoints that's included inside of transportation. So the log may oh, happen for the end end result of the communication to the service on the other side for like a, an Active Directory log or a Sentinel log on on the Azure AD side. But you're right. talking about something inside of uh, a web request or SOAP. Uh, in fact, I think it's a SOAP request. And so this is happening inside of a transport on top of that. And, and oh, ideally, that like Tyler, I, I, I don't see why this can't be available in Azure Sentinel, right? Like Microsoft could make well, that happen. I think it is, but it takes a pretty specific setup looking for this specific thing. And this is, this is uh, okay. fairly identified as one of the endpoints uh, that can be, you know, sprayed against or, or brute forced. So yeah, you can most definitely probably do this with Sentinel, uh, but you have to have the setup and you have to know the very specific SOAP request from which endpoint you're looking at and targeting. And so this is Yikes. fairly new. And again, I think we're going to see more of these. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so moving on to, to number two, you know, talking about mitigations for, uh, Microsoft issues, (laughs) (laughs) um, Microsoft has added their own. So, so this, this one really got me. Um, and, and, a lot of people are kind of celebrating this and saying, hey, more vendors should do this. You know, but at the same time, I'm not sure I've seen this Microsoft do something like this before. But they're adding um, basically a component that's going to be on by default uh, for Exchange servers. Uh, that's basically, it, it, it's kind of like a host intrusion prevention or, or, or like a WAF component that's in line, it, it looks like, that can block... Or it's kind of like virtual patching. If you've seen virtual patching done with WAFs and things like that, where it can, uh, in the future, they can automatically deploy mitigations to it uh, if new vulnerabilities are found in Exchange so that they can automatically block them. And this this clearly you, looks like a response to all the Exchange vulnerabilities we've seen over the, you know, to 2021, right? You, you add this to the fact that they are pushing a hotfix to disable a protocol on exchange for, for basic authentication. I think you have that in another story, but they're yeah, pushing a hotfix for, for basic, you know, basic auth, which is a good thing. But the fact that they're pushing that, how many custom implementations, client applications, custom programming may still utilize that in legacy apps. And then you combine the fact that they're going to do active blocking on by default uh, IPS and WAF. It kind of shows the shift of where Microsoft's uh, head is and how they're trying to push their clients to maybe the O365 solution, maybe just a more secure, uh, proactive stance. But that has a lot of connotations, and there's there's a lot of problems with doing that because not everybody is ready. I, I agree, everybody should be, well, but and, there's and that's, a lot that's of business forever. reasons they don't do it. <laughs> that's forever the dilemma with Microsoft, though. Is is like. You know, okay, why haven't you fixed this yet? Because it's going to break customers, you know, and, and then they go and do fix things and it breaks customers. And, you, you know, there, there's, they've set themselves up to where it's kind of a lose-lose situation in, for some of these. Well, it may as well be secure, right? Like, I think that is what their their stance is. It's lose-lose. Yeah. And uh, so we may as well force better security and stop dealing with uh, the aftermath of right. all these customers getting ransomed and dealing with that fallout. So why not pushing them to security? That seems like a good place to be because they are at a lose-lose. Like, you know, other places have done this from the beginning, and so they're not. Uh, everyone is kind of used to it in their ecosystem. Microsoft's not been that customer or that vendor for for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I, they're, I think they're, the they're move in Windows 10 to automatically reboot um, to apply patches was a big move for Microsoft, and and kind of put them into this era of okay, we're now comfortable with automatically doing stuff to customer environment. Yep. You know, let me, let me throw something out there. I mean, I, I, this is probably a, not a popular opinion, but I, I, I have a problem with this. And the problem is not that it's a good idea. I think it is in its own way a good idea. I think there's very good arguments for it. Don't get me wrong. I worry about all of the customers that, that are there that have custom software, in-house software, legacy software, all sorts of stuff that integrations, blah, blah, blah that are going to have significant problems with this kind of emergency patching that they're not going to be able to test or check or whatever. And it's going to incentivize people to only use commercial off-the-shelf software. It's going to incentivize them to go into more and more and more of a walled garden environment. I realize I'm being a little, uh, you know, the sky is falling, but... 
Well, anybody can reconfigure this however they want. You know, they're not forced to accept this configuration or or to use the um, exchange on-premises mitigation tool. Um, but, you know, Microsoft is is throwing this stuff out as the default. You can absolutely change the defaults. You know, so, yeah, some right. of the advice there is going to be, you know, as soon as you roll the, out that new version, disable, you know, exchange on-premises mitigation tool, which I don't think has an easy acronym i think i have to say the whole thing because otherwise it's eopmt f-u-b-a-r it's an iops fubar (laughs) (laughs) thank you jeff you're welcome i mean yeah i i see josh's point but you know i i think microsoft is trying to you know play to the lowest common common denominator greatest common denominator I, I wasn't good at math. Sorry. Uh, greatest common denominator. That might be it too. Uh, too much PCI talking. We're not even done yet. Um, you know, I think the majority of companies out there don't have solid programs. Don't aren't looking at this kind of stuff, and they're better off, gen- generally speaking, by having this thrust upon them. Uh, you know, those that are wise and those that have mature organizations will will be more selective and and, and evaluate. But you know, for the greater good, uh, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Star Trek. And, and those, honestly, those companies need to be moved anyway. Like they are the ones that cause problems, and they're the, usually the squeaky wheel, which are usually the you know the low fifteen percent that don't have budget, don't have talent or training or have upper management that doesn't buy in. So let's just get them secure by making them. Yeah. And Not you know, I, I'm for it. Anytime Microsoft wants to introduce a tool here, like laps, you know, I think was a big win. You know, they didn't automatically, you know, force people to change all the local admin passwords or anything like that, but they made it available and you could use it. And each time they introduce one of these tools, um, you know, at, at least people have the option of doing things better. Right. It's yep. worth something. No, I think anything right. that Microsoft's doing, especially around Exchange, Exchange has always been and probably will always be one of the uh, big pain points for Microsoft uh, until everybody gets that shift to, you know, O365, which is never going to happen. There's always going to be an on-prem solution for a lot of these clients that that's how they're going to do it. And that takes well, us into the next story here. Number four, blue team, 70% of companies saying migrating to the cloud is a top priority, which, of course, doesn't mean that the existing legacy environment is going away for anybody. Like, we're, but, we're just we're just adding adding on new stuff. Well, I mean, and we're going to do it all the only issue, though. Come on. I don't know. Is it one of the stories about the Azure running out of space? No. <laughs> Was that oh a thing? yeah, you can't you can't spin up any Azure uh, systems right now. Uh, they're they're they they have no VMs left available. Not a joke. What? Oh what? my goodness! What what are you what are you doing, Microsoft? Did you read that they on TikTok? Is the is the what? number of VMs based on a thirty two bit architecture or sixty four? No, no, they just they literally <laughs> ran out of hardware to let you spin crap up. So if you spin something hardware. down, they sent out a notice earlier today. If you spin something down. You might not be able to spin it back up. There's a hardware limitation to virtual. What? Remember, virtual is just somebody else's computer. When they run out of computers, you're done. 
Well, they they really shouldn't. So, and it's interesting in AWS. Uh, there's it's an entire virtual, page. There are dozens hardware? of different um, hard limitations that you have in AWS. That's mainly just trying to trying to keep you from foot gunning yourself. I think. Um, but if you're not aware of them, if you're not aware that you, there's a 5,000 account limitation, uh, you know, for, for creating accounts within an AWS account, uh, if you like build a product, say on top of that, you know, you're going to hit that at one point and all of a sudden you can't onboard more customers. Um, so I, I know there's a lot of virtual, uh, uh, limitations, uh, to, to, you know, within public clouds, you know, to expand stuff, but, yeah, if Microsoft is actually running out of real hardware, that that's kind of embarrassing. That sounds like fake um, news, and they've, they've got an operation that they're spinning up for utilization of something that they needed the power. I think it's a supply chain. It's entirely issue possible based that it's it's, 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 it's very temporary. Blockchain. But there's one, and if you give me one second, I'll find the. And that's just because it's quickly to find the Reddit post on that. But um, didn't you just post well, it in? Red and, and um, I threw it into uh, a Discord, and then Down Detector. Uh, there were several reports of Azure being out in the last twenty-four hours. It's been, oh, it was a day ago. Sorry, it wasn't today. It was last. It was yesterday. But um, yeah, it's, it's now because they got Amazon. <laughs> Some, somebody responded. Somebody responded to that post that said, "Likely to be somewhat our fault as we've just reser- reserved seventy-five thousand nodes in EUS two for six weeks oh, and another 60,000 in Northeast. <laughs> why? That might be why. There you go. But I mean, the point is, is that there are limits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's, my, it's, it's not often that that happens. But yeah. is, it a, is it a limit actually in the hardware or is it a limit in, in seriously, whatever variable that they declared to, you know, set up these things? Because I'm sure they count them. And and is it, is it a limitation in, in the size of the variable? I mean, a data center yeah, no, has no. I, I, there's of course there's hard limits, you know, and and it's you know if somebody wants to spool up a bajillion instances, you know, you, you can't anticipate that, you know, which is why they put in those soft limits. I mean, if you run out of machine, it is hard to spin up another VM. They try to make it seem as if there is no end of the machines, but there effectively is. There's only so many machines there are in the world. Yeah, I mean, the best you can do is look at how many machines somebody spun up yesterday and respond to that for tomorrow. You know, if one day somebody decides to spin up 1,000 times more than anybody has spun up before, you know, you can only be so prepared for that. And, and you have to add the supply chain and a lot of the chip issues with uh getting hardware right now like this is a an issue for everybody you have more money there is a limitation on the ability for shipping for time to manufacture even quantity is still a problem so you know rare earth metal is the next war oh actually can i can i throw something else in that because i just talked to a gentleman today oh sure Uh, why not go for so uh (laughs) apparently if you want electronics for christmas go buy them now um, they're yeah, going, yeah, I've the, heard that too. Yeah, the supply chain is about to get crunked. Um, How's the supply badly. chain of bourbon doing? Anybody know? Uh, that's mostly I in the U.S. The ransoms, We're okay there. Okay. The ransoms yeah, of uh, alcohol shops has not been a thing, and I think there's maybe a reason for that. I don't know. 
Scotch is more of an issue, you know, because right. it has to be most of it on average is aged longer than bourbon. Most, but of them, uh, yeah. no, the supply chain and electronics. Uh, matter of fact, they're shutting factories down in China because of electricity shortages, which is one of the reasons I believe that they actually start start uh, outlawed Bitcoin mining in China entirely. <laughs> I was going to say it, because they oh, banned. Yeah. Uh, cryptocurrency there like that should fix that problem real quick <laughs> which by the way if you look china the country is one of the top holders of bitcoin but we're going to ignore that for a minute well and and, and they banned using cryptocurrency there not mining it there oh they banned, no, they mining, banned it too. mining it because of oh, the, uh, the electricity yes i i well i, didn't, I don't know I, if I it's because of electricity but they ban well, mining. One of the reasons. One of the reasons. Oh, okay. I thought it was just the usage. Okay. But no, they've been shutting factories down. They've been like, hey, you want a factory? Shut it down tomorrow for three days. And you're like, uh, I need to manufacture stuff. Don't care. Shut it down. Yeah. And no, they, so they, they, they don't mess yeah. around. No, they don't. So they're shutting factories down. That's an electricity shortage. The chip shortage is huge, of course. Uh, there's certain uh, companies in our industry that are basically out of everything they sell, hardware-wise, there's uh, it's it's very difficult. So if you yeah. want electronics, like I'm, I was thinking about a laptop. I think I'm going to go this weekend and buy one. And bringing it back to cloud, cloud is interesting because a lot of the cloud providers uh, produce their own hardware. Yeah, you know, but they still AWS use the chips and the stuff from designs China. and manufacturers. Yeah, yeah, no, they're still probably dependent on third-party chips. You know, but like the main processors and stuff like that, like a Amazon has their own chip fab. You know, not for all well, the chips they use in the systems, but for like main processors and stuff like that for their for their switches. So what happens when we get to a point in cloud where the scalability and the reason you went to the cloud, you can't scale anymore as an organization. And this big shift is now a um, availability problem. Well, I, I mean, I think the first sign is Netflix would stop working since they're probably one of the most hardcore gung-ho uh, AWS users. So yeah, if they start having problems, then I, I'd start to worry. But you know, as long start as your Netflix still works. Or start I having this type of it problem. Hmm. I think so, we should, we should move on, you Adrian. Cited. I really, really want to get to your, uh, well, your but, black map. Well, yeah. getting, back to getting back to the topic, uh, and I'm not sure it's a security-related issue, but... Why so many companies wanting to go to the cloud? I guess there is a security question in there somewhere. You know, the advantages yes. or dif disadvantages of the cloud versus on-prem from a security yeah, so perspective. From a, well, it's not. There isn't a, well, I mean, there is a security. There are security reasons for going to the cloud, and it's really kind of the same as the business reasons for going to the cloud. It's the ability to move quickly, you know, to make changes quickly. You know, you, you don't have to commit to something for 18 months, you know, for a, any particular architecture or decision you've made. Uh, you can fail very, very quickly. You can make a mistake and say, well, that architecture didn't work. You know, here's a new Terraform or cloud formation file. Let's try it this way instead. And, and you can throw that together. We also seen a big shift from all the early adopters of the cloud, right, that are now... Uh, have learned their lesson and figured out what works in the cloud and what doesn't. And there's been a massive shift back where they've had a lot of lessons learned. And the hybrid approach seems to be those that adopted early are either moving all the way back to on-prem uh, and scaling up yeah. because they found the cost, or they're doing a hybrid and being very, very deliberate about the things that they do put in the cloud 
and scaling only what is needed and shifting back to on-prem because there are a ton of things that are great and you can um, you know add some security but there's a ton of stuff you don't control and there's a layer of complexity that allows you uh, even less control inside of that and then you add on top of that the cost of it and you've got a whole plethora of problems that then once you've done it you kind of figure out what works and what does not work and you scale back very quickly. Well and that's a beautiful thing about infrastructure as code is if you're using something like like Terraform, it doesn't have to be an AWS. You know, you can stand up that infrastructure anywhere. You know that that you know, Terraform file is is going to be uh, compatible with. You know, so so the concepts of what was kind of born in the cloud absolutely apply to to on prem as well. So like if you look at Etsy, Etsy is is one of the companies that really kind of coined. Uh, a lot of the processes and ideas behind what we call DevOps, and they really just use AWS for bursting. You know, when they when they needed extra capacity, that's when they would stand up stuff in AWS. Uh, but they traditionally kept everything in their their own data center. But they still use those concepts of uh, ephemeral systems, uh, distribute uh, you know highly distributed systems. Uh, you know, um, site reliability, engineering, all that stuff. They use all those principles, but in their own data center and uh, just using the cloud to, to extend that. I think we're but getting yeah, way off topic, on. but move, it's fun. Let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> sure. Black, yeah, so... so uh, oh, you want to you jump down to, uh, to cybercrime? We can do that. I'm excited. I'm excited for for your interview that for is a surprise that has not gotten released yet. So I'm super stoked. When I guess when is that going to be released? Tell uh, us about I that. I think it, it's uh, we're having an analyst day, um, and I I believe it's um, from Wednesday. I think it's three weeks away. So Wait, it's what is not day. What is an analyst day? Well, so <laughs> I, I, what are we I think talking there's about? A, I think there's a security analyst day because October is cybersecurity awareness month. And it's just something that, that we're doing at security weekly, uh, you know, for one day in October. And, um, yeah, so I believe it's, it's going to be for enterprise security weekly, not two weeks from now, but I think three weeks from now. And, and, uh, somebody, Sam or Renee can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on that. Uh, we'll I can all jump down your throat if you're wrong. What but, is uh, analyst day? Give me a what clue, are we talking a about? hint, a smoke signal, perhaps. Well, it's just like celebrating security analysts. So all the topics are, are kind of focused on on defenders, basically. Oh, okay. During this okay, week, so let me, there's let me an be interview. Clear. But it's going to be like what, an all-day streaming type thing. So Security Weekly will be there. Tyler. But there's also going to be like five hours of streaming on top of uh, Enterprise Security Weekly. So that Wednesday, like we're going to be streaming a total of, uh, I don't know how many hours, like seven or eight hours. Ladies and gentlemen, on October 20th, it will be National Analyst Day here at Security Weekly. We'll have 10 or 20 hours of content just for you. Isn't that exciting? Security Thank analysts, you. those other analysts need not apply, need not show up. Security analysts. Security analysts. <laughs> so what Tyler's getting excited about are stories 11, 12... Is it 11? No, 12, 13, and 14. So uh, the, let's see, uh, the record uh, is this really cool um, publication that recorded futures funding. 
and, and what they're kind of going after is uh, a format similar to um, uh, Blo- Bloomberg, I want to say. Uh, and, and the idea is to to just kind of have this coverage, uh, you know, that that's unique to, um, you know, that that's that's very focused on, on this kind of stuff. And and they've got interviews with um, there. There's an analyst, a Russian speaking analyst at Recorded Future, that has interviewed some folks from cybercrime uh, crews, from ransomware crews, and they've got three of these interviews so far. And that's a lot of what we talk about on that segment that we're talking about. That's going to air in about three weeks. Yeah, very, very uh, in-depth insight into how ransomware, like unless you hang out in these forums, unless you spend a ton of time in the the kind of criminal underground chats or groups and understand how the ecosystem works, it's kind of hard to understand how uh, a lot of this ransomware plays out, what the ransomware groups are doing, how they're organized, what their thought processes are. Uh, a lot of this is, and their analysts, I've actually been looking into some of their analysts and how they're doing it. Uh, they get into the specifics of these these groups and and interview them, which is providing a ton of insight uh, around uh, things that we had to make speculations on, uh, things that some of us knew that you know maybe didn't make public. There's a ton of stuff here that uh, I think is going to be very useful for uh, really getting a, a handle on what we're dealing with from a ransomware standpoint, and you know reinforcing the things we've been saying about how ransomware groups work, how the business operates, uh, how initial access is handed off, how there's different groups and, and things happening. So all these pieces are kind of getting tied together uh, in a very meaningful threat intelligence kind of format. It's like Bloomberg uh, had a baby with the podcast of uh, Darknet Diaries. It, it's really quite fascinating what they're getting involved in. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and they're great to read. The The links are in there. And uh, so Black Matter was one you were most interested in, Tyler? Or the one you yeah, wanted Black to start Matter with? Yeah, Black Matter is one I've been following and in, in, in a couple groups that I, I keep in close contact with because they've shifted very heavily and there's some scary stuff that they're doing. So that one's of particular interest to me. Yeah, so th- there's a lot of interesting things across these. Uh, you know, I think it's easy to think of some of these ransomware crews as – you, you, just all criminals. Um, but once you read the interviews with each of them, they're a little bit different. You know, like like some of them, you know, they're very competitive with one another. And some of them, you know, kind of, you know, spill the tea on, on their competitors or, you know, talk trash about their competitors, which, which I'm here for. Like, I, I want to see more of those interviews where they're they're kind of, uh, you know, trashing, you know, their, their code's terrible. Our code is much better. Our ransomware is, is much more modern. Uh, so there's a lot of that in there. Um, and also, the money is just crazy. Like, they get them talking about money and talking about how, you know, that this one guy makes $50 million and uh, says he's going to retire, and then he's back four months later, re- ready to, to go again. $50 million what? Rupal? Rupal? U.S. dollars. U.S. dollars. Okay. In Bitcoin, yeah, I mean, I'd, in Bitcoin. I'd retire at that point too. I, I would admit, I, I don't think that's a bad idea. I think retiring at fifty million is a very valid thought. I mean, Adrian, I'm surprised <laughs> that you would think that was a bad idea. Yeah, well, no, I, I didn't say it was a bad idea at all. <laughs> it depends on the lifestyle and how many debts you owe. Like, if you owe the Russian government, or you know, you get caught and have to pay people off, like fifty million probably goes pretty quick. Well, I mean, fifty million of what though? Like, like. How do you, you said U.S. dollars? 
Right. But, you know, how, how do you, I, I mean, certainly it's easier than the old days when they were trying to fence stolen credit card numbers and you buy an iPhone, you know, over here, you know, with, with your stolen credit card number and then you'd resell it over here. And it, it, that's how you're turning it into hard cash that you could actually use. Uh, with cryptocurrency, you know, I got to wonder, you know, with that amount, you know, how you're turning that into, into, it would be great to have a guest on that can talk about the tumblers, you know, and how they, how they actually turn that cryptocurrency into usable cash. Hi. Into usually, Lambos. Usually <laughs> you're how, do you, how, how do you turn 50 million in Bitcoin into, into a Lambo? I, you, I teach that don't. if you want to talk about it. So you can go to Wasabi or CoinJoin to try to make it uh, anonymous. It's going to fail because it depends on the number of people that want, uh, how badly they want you. If you've got somebody that's just casual about this and they've got a full-time job besides, you're, you, you do Wasabi and CoinJoin and do a couple of rounds of these kinds of things, multiple wallets that aren't attached to anything, you're good. Uh, if you have a, a nation-state actor after you, it's problematic. Okay, so uh, you've got to be careful with that. But effectively, it's possible if you're careful to keep your money. I mean, they're still tracking. Uh, actually, coins that have been used in ransomware are blacklisted by most legitimate exchanges. So you have to uh, uh, use those. If you've got blacklisted coins because they've, they're registered as having been used for ransomware payments, you've got to use them at, at sort of off-license uh, uh, exchanges. Or you can do local Bitcoin and sell them. But the exchange rate is horrible, okay? Um, and yeah, you can actually buy a Porsche 911 or a Lambo for Bitcoin, depending on if you buy it from a dealership or buy it used. Uh, and you can do local Bitcoin and advertise, hey, I want an, a Porsche, uh, a Lambo. I will pay X number of Bitcoin and uh, I don't care. So no, They're not exclusivity with Lambo. Adrian. You, you end up... <laughs> You end up working with uh, working with the mafia, though. Like, if you're doing this at scale, right. and you're doing this through washers, like, what ends up happening oh, yeah. is you're you're working with some very shady people, and you end up you end up in trouble. We'll say that's how a lot of these guys uh, they're very technical, uh, and they may have a lot of money, and it may be the first time they have a lot of money, so they don't know how to deal with these particular groups, and so you end up with. Uh, being in debt, in bed, and getting very, very screwed. And likely that's probably why some of these guys have to come back. More money, more problems. <laughs> yeah, so... He was, um, he was just pausing for effect. Yeah, pausing for effect. Yeah, so so it's interesting, you know, talking about that, talking about cashing out, um, one of the things we learned from the Black Matter, well... It's conjecture, you know, they're, they're kind of guessing. Uh, but one of the questions that the interviewer, Dimitri, asks is, uh, you know, why, why do you think uh, the Department of Justice here in the U.S. was able to recover bitcoins from the colonial pipeline ransom? And, and they, they think it's because they, uh, they, you know, again, kind of, you know, first time they've had a lot of money, you know, they one of the affiliates or somebody like that transferred it to uh, web-based wallets that were uh, – somewhere that the Department of Justice could easily seize them. There's a Which lot makes of a lot of sense because they got those, you know, I think they recovered it pretty quick. It was within a week or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's certain, there's certain wallets that are controlled. There's certain means to gain access. And there's a lot of entities that are tracking, uh, openly tracking and sometimes closed tracking 
all of these wallets or exchanges. So yeah. their ability to be in bed with, you know, you think these things start up out of nowhere and, and don't have cooperations and agreements in order to operate. Like there's a lot going on in the backside of this. A lot so going you got to understand that the uh, a lot of the exchanges are going KYC AML, know your customer anti money laundering, and to do so, they have to yeah. agree that if if law enforcement shows up with a subpoena, they hand over the money, and so that if if that money passes through an exchange on its way to somewhere else, one of the ones that's controlled, uh, within minutes, within seconds, actually, you, they'll get a phone call and an email and uh, somebody knocking on their door because they don't they believe in redundancy. These federal agencies do, and it'll be high. Turn this over. Yeah, It'll be interesting. But there was the bad guys case. are going to know, like they're going to know with which. Ex- exchanges those are right like they're gonna know as good as scribing intelligence and sometimes that's true and sometimes that's not well and and that's one of the things we learn about these crews is like yeah again some of them are criticizing the other ones like you know going after critical infrastructure was so dumb so you've got black matter you know talking smack about revil you know um you know kind of turning up the heat on themselves yeah, it's it's very interesting how like again, a lot of these people are very very technical. A lot of these crews of you know operate that doesn't necessarily mean they know the ropes of how money laundering works, how criminal uh, organized crime works and functions, and a lot of them maybe just getting into the contacts necessary to do that. So you've got a lot of uh, disparate workers in say Ukraine, Eastern Bloc, Russia. Uh, people that had skills or were working for government entities or, or even technical companies that went under during COVID uh, or were laid off, they had to supplement some of that income. And you know they're not necessarily criminals or have operated in those criminal spaces that have contacts there. So they're just learning how a lot of this works and how to deal. Uh, and that's probably problematic for many of them. Yeah, so so you're talking about how big these are and how distributed. You know, Revo was talking about having as many as 60 affiliates at one point in time, and, and it's it's grown to a point to where they have the luxury of deciding how much of the the actual work they want to do. You know, so some of them saying like like we're not even interested in hacking VPNs and stuff like that. You know, earlier in the Koala segment, you know, we're talking about um, you know some of these actors going after RDP and stuff like that. A lot of times it sounds like those are going to be affiliates, you know, not, not the, not the company that actually gets in and does that kind of internal piece that we're talking about looks like a pen test these days. Um, sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying a lot of those aren't even affiliates. A lot of those are secondary companies and or initial initial access from a criminal group that hands it off to either an affiliate or their known connection with inside of uh, one of the groups. Because the groups are pretty tight and they're pretty small. And having a connection with inside of those uh, are handed just like drugs. They're handed through the distribution chain and, and up the chain. Like you don't know who's talking to who and that gets passed off. Oh, so that's interesting, yeah. Tyler. So, so there are groups that are like lower than affiliates that are, yeah, you know, you so well, customers. They're customers yeah. and partners. You have, you know, you the Zeus Banking Trojan, for example, was great. Uh, Zeus ba- in that sense, Zeus Banking Trojan. The people that built it didn't use it; they rented it to other companies, right. other people, yeah, yeah. other organizations, yeah. other groups. Yeah, same, so they were same customers. thing with botnets, right? What's that? Same thing with botnets. A lot of the botnets. Yeah, exactly. Out there. 
So now you're talking about if I am a specialist in in initial access, and then I hand it over to the ransom, you know, I sell I sell this company to the ransomware gang, like Tyler was talking about, and I. Um, uh oh, so Dimitri's going, every time we say affiliates, I can't stop picturing some multi-level marketing thing trying to scale, sell skin cream. And it's it's sort of the same thing in a sense. You know, you develop relationships with other groups and you do initial access and then you're like, okay, who's going to give me the best price for uh, a medical company? Oh, you are. Who's going to give me the best price for a financial services company? You are. So I'll sell them to you and you. And uh, I sell them to them and then they do their ransomware and then they have money mules and or it's a whole there's a chain of criminality that goes through this whole thing. All right. Should, should we move on? Please. <laughs> yeah, so, so another interesting trend here, you know, going back to story number five, where we've got a, a, a couple trends here and, and we'll get into to zero days. Um, mandatory reporting of breaches. It sounds like we, we've got more and more push and support for, uh, you know, again, I, I don't think it's going to be 100% of everybody, but they're definitely talking about private businesses, you know, some some kind of mandatory reporting of breaches, which I, I think is, you know, I agree with uh, their statement here that it's way overdue. So here's the kicker. You've got CISA who's saying this and Jen Easterly and uh, Chris Inglis, and now they've got Alan Friedman just joined uh, CISA as well. Right, They're right. really building a, a, a pretty solid team of actual cyber experts and actual Dream people team. that can get stuff done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but still, there there needs to be legislation. Like like we're pre legislation at this point. You know, they're, they're, no, we're not. I no, we're not. 49 or 50 states have breach reporting legislation, mandatory breach reporting legislation. The legislation is there on the state level. Do we need it on the federal level? Yeah, I think we do. You're right there. But the legislation is there to mandatorily report breaches under certain circumstances. There's also the compliance standards. Hey, Jeff, what's the mandatory reporting notification limit or time zone timeline on PCI? You know, it's funny that you bring that up, Josh, because the... I have a couple comments on that. Uh, specifically, the answer to your question is 72 hours. But the notification is not to the public. It's to the card brands. That's point number one. Point number two, most of the companies that I've worked with over the years that have suffered a, a, a breach, a compromise of credit card data, they had no clue it was happening. They didn't detect it. They had to have the card brands come to them and say, hey, you know, we've been doing our little fraud detection thing and, and they've got all sorts of fancy algorithms where they, they find the point of common uh, interaction. You know, they're like, hey, there's a bunch of cards being used for fraud. What do they all have in common? Oh, this gas station at the corner of Elm Street and Main Street in you know, Sheboygan, Wisconsin or something like that. <laughs> uh, and so they call the gas station up and say, hey. We think you guys have been compromised. That's usually how companies, at least in the in, in the PCI space, are finding out about breaches. There are exceptions, but that's probably the 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 vast majority of companies. So, um, you know, I guess my opinion of this is okay. Yeah, this is great. You know, find out that there's breaches happening so everybody can take action and learn from the mistakes and all that kind of stuff. But uh, to me, it's more a matter of who's who's the responsibility fall on for reporting the notification, because you know the card brands find out about a whole lot of stuff happening long before uh, the merchants do. Just as an example, thoughts. So I, 
I want to I want to I want to sort of piggyback on that for just a second. So the the kicker mm-hmm. is is that I, I talked about this earlier today uh, uh, that actuarial tables don't work for cybersecurity because we don't have all the information and because mm-hmm. it's different from cars and auto accidents. However, if right. we don't have all the data, we can never even start building the actuarial tables. If we do mandatory reporting, we can build the actuarial tables. It's literally that simple. You can't do analysis on data you don't have. Well, so, so I mean, currently what's getting reported is, is not enough for us to really do anything useful with. Like, like knowing somebody has a yeah. breach or how many records have been leaked or something like that doesn't tell us that somebody clicked a link in a phishing email, you know, and then they pivoted and, you know, did whatever. Like, like those details, like the kind of stuff that we see in the really high profile cases, um, you know, can, can be useful. And I'd love to see that more standardized because, you know, same thing with, uh, with traffic as accidents with the uh, NTHSA, you know, like, like that wouldn't be useful either if you didn't have those details on, uh, you know, it was an offset crash or it was a frontal crash or, you know, that does, you know, how the crash occurred, how people were injured, you know, that, that, yeah, that Adrian, kind of thing. you're raising details. Jeff. All right. Yeah. I accidentally unplugged my, my headset. Um, oh. you're raising a really <laughs> I was good wondering point. what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I couldn't hear you. I probably could still talk and you'd hear me. Um, does any of this proposed legislation talk about details or is simply notification? No. Oh, no, yeah, something that, bad and, happened. Uh, that, and, that's and that's big, kind of my frustration. And, yeah, and also, a, like you were saying, right this is this uh, requires reporting to the government, not to the public. Right. So this is different from the state level legislation that we've seen, you know, which, which will specifically say, yeah, you you know you gotta either notify your customers or notify the media if you can't specifically notify those customers. Like like a lot of that legislation legislation is very specific about telling the people who are affected. In this case, this is uh, a, a a lot of this is about telling the government directly. And I guess, I guess to cut to the maybe chase, the government then tells everybody. But yeah, I I, I don't know. To I don't cut know. To the I, I haven't read the. There are draft well, bills. I haven't. I haven't read them. But uh, I mean, these draft bills have been around for years and years and years. I, I remember uh, when I worked at Tenable, Ron Gula had me join him down in D.C. One time, we were meeting with some some former congressional aides working on some subcommittee, talking about you know how do we improve cyber? I forget what the exact context was, but. It all, you know, eventually the conversation or sooner rather than later, it came around to notification. I I will throw it on the public record. I don't get it. Why does all this talk about the government needs to intercede and step in? And then it always boils down to breach notification. The EO that came out back in what, January, February, most of that had to do with the notification. I, I don't get it. I, I have I have never understood and don't understand why that's what the government seems to want to lead with anybody tell me explain it to me why they think that's the place to start oh boy nobody has an answer good let's move on i think a lot yeah. of this is is just kind of throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks and and agree you know like you know same thing with uh 
automotive. Oh, that's right. It's government Le- legislation. They got to have the appearance of doing something. It's not as important to actually do anything meaningful. Well, it's not. It's not just that. That a lot of the knee jerk uh, kind of stuff it isn't really what you want to see anyway. Like you want to see maybe some of those bills not get passed, and, and you know the the next bills kind of build upon that and get things a little bit more. I, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, yeah, certainly dealing with. Uh, breach legislation at the state level is not easy for companies is not ideal well and and i think even china has like a gdpr now (laughs) they've kind of beat us to the punch on that well we have ccpa and cpra is coming in and you know we've got various forms of legislation at the state level but i mean what you're talking about is what and, and and I mean we haven't even talked about the core question is what is a breach? Can you define a breach, please? Yeah, and and, and we've got a bunch of different definitions on that too. You know, so that yeah. that needs to be resolved as well. You know, the the thing I'm most interested in personally are the details that allow us to learn from other people's mistakes and get better, which we don't currently have from any of this legislation that I've seen. You know, the only time we see that is when there's class action lawsuits and the actual incident report becomes public knowledge because of the legal process or, you know, somebody, somebody on, uh, you know, in DC, uh, you know, takes, a, a an interest in it, you know, and it becomes public that way, you know, but in some form we, we get that investigation, you know, the actual mandate report becomes public and, and, and we get all those kind of details of why the breach occurred. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Adrian. I think that's part of it, and I also think that's bullshit because you know I've been hearing from customers in the commercial world for 20, 25 years. Uh, they're not concerned about security. They're not concerned about what should we be doing to protect ourselves. Their first question is usually uh, some variation of well, what's everybody else in our industry doing because we want to do just that much. Yeah. So that yeah. <laughs> we can't be faulted for being irresponsible for not pre- you know, practicing best practices. Um, yeah, we, we didn't want to go crazy we, here. We want to do just just a little bit more or the same. No, just the same. There is no more. It, and, you know, you know the the <laughs> it's the whole. You know, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You have to be faster than your friends, and then you're okay. Type of analogy. Um, unfortunately, we've evolved, and and the and the uh, you know the Arms bad race. guys have evolved to. Yeah, there's at least as many, if not more, bears than there are friends in this particular scenario. So now, what are you going to do? Yeah, have lots more friends that you can feed to the. Wait, that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> have a steady supply of friends you can feed to the bear there yeah, we go that doesn't that, that that just is an unpleasant situation you know yeah, I, yeah it is but it boils down to and and there's a there's also a certain amount of uh you know we're talking about two different things now you know when we're talking about national security and department of homeland security and CISA, which i always get confused whether it's an agency or certification <laughs> but that notwithstanding, yeah. um, you know, there there's absolutely a real mission that's countering national security threats, espionage, counter espionage. You know, I used to live in that world. I get that, and that's 
way, way different from the private sector that's that's not, frankly, worried as much about the breach, especially in the credit card world, because, you know, every, you know, every, you know, you as a consumer, all of us as consumers, we don't really have to worry about whether our credit card is stolen. It's not going to cost us money. It's inconvenient. Right. But, you know, generally speaking, it's not going to cost us anything. So it's, it's, it's just this huge inconvenience. Um, but, you know, the most of the commercial sector is driven not by, well, we're trying to, you know, do the right thing and be secure. It's how much do we have to pay for compliance? How much how much do we have to get fined if we're not compliant? It's all the dollars and cents things. Yeah, business um, decision. Yeah. And and that's I call that the real world because that's a lot of what's going on. And and part of the you know part of the drive in the last year or so, you know, the the attention that's being uh, given by the government, the and you know the the spin up of the the agencies and bringing in you know new people and power hitters and so on and so forth. From a from a national security perspective, great. Um, and, and, and from a commercial perspective, eh. And, and what and what's problematic is the crossover. Uh, you know, where do we draw the line between what's a national security interest versus you know it's just the the private sector just trying to conduct commerce and and be profitable. When you get into the things like critical infrastructure and what happens if the power grid or the water company or uh, you know whatever gets compromised or just ransomware and and. You know the ransomware against you know what was it the water treatment facility in Florida? I get you know there's right. been so many of them lately. Um, you know they're not doing that because of a national security. They're trying to compromise the government and undermine the economy and 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 win a, a new cold war, cyber cold war. Um, they're doing it because hey, this is somebody that we were able to target and it was successful, so that we can make some money. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. It might be the same group that's engaging in espionage. Maybe Tyler would have a comment, but there's things here that just don't connect. And the conversation, I think, needs to be a different conversation, depending on whether we're focusing on national security interests, critical infrastructure, or the private sector. That's my opinion. Yeah. Moving on to some other trends here talking about zero days. Um, yeah, I think this is a, a pretty short one. There's not a whole lot to talk about it except that the numerically, the number of zero days uh, discovered in 2021 has gone up, but the, the general take on this is that it's generally a good thing just because we're uncovering, we're getting better at finding zero days and, and uncovering them and getting them out there. And furthermore, less of those zero days are are really useful to attackers. You know, a lot of them are, are very complex to take advantage of, you know, seeing a lot of academic zero days that, that are difficult to use in the wild. Um, so it's interesting that this is from how uh, Patrick Howell O'Neill at the MIT Technology Review. Uh, that seems to be the TLDR is it's complicated. You know, but generally it sounds like they're saying, you know, we're, we're just getting a lot better thanks to bug bounties and things like that at finding this stuff. So, yeah, you know, the numbers we, are going we up. Interviewed, oh, I'm sorry. We interviewed Casey Ellis of Bug Crowd over on Security and Compliance Weekly just two days ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, I saw that th- one. One of the things that happened was that over in the comments on, I think, Twitch, I don't remember, uh, maybe YouTube, we had a gentleman that was like, well, they banned me and, 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 and there, there were some. Oh, I, I, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> and so a couple drama. of the people there were, yeah, a couple of people there were talking about if I find a zero day, I don't report it. I just sell it to Zerodium uh, or, mm-hmm. or, or sell it to, to a black marketer. 
And it was interesting that the the attitude of people that the researchers or whatever you want to call them uh, about zero days has changed drastically from who let me show you what I can do with this to let me go make a lot of money. Yeah, like half of the vul- uh, half of the um, calls that I do with ions, I, I know Josh, you and I do a lot of ions calls uh, are are around vulnerability disclosure and, and, and bug bounties. And really? I spend okay. most of those calls. Yeah, I spend most of those calls talking about um, how to deal with those researchers. You know, because most of the most of the times you th- see these things go south. Is how people, uh, you know, how responsive they are, you know, just kind of understanding the perspective of the researcher, you know, and the frustration they have with trying to disclose these. And if you introduce a lot of friction into that process, you know, if if, if you make it difficult for people to do that, um, you know, then then yeah, they're just going to go the the easiest path, you know, full disclosure or sell it to somebody or whatever, you know. But then the flip side of that. You know, I think a lot of the a lot of the folks out there discovering this kind of stuff don't understand how hard it is to fix some of this stuff. You know, when when they do actually want to to do the right thing to report it to companies and stuff like that. So it, it's it's man, disclosure debate is is no easier today, I think, than it used to be. Maybe ten years ago. Well, remember responsible disclosure versus full disclosure and open source tooling. And there's, uh, and and that's a trigger. You just used a trigger word. Responsible disclosure (laughs) implies that you're irresponsible if, you know, you don't go that specific path, you know, so they changed it to coordinated disclosure, you know, so responsible disclosure is considered, uh, (laughs) it's not PC anymore. You're not supposed to say responsible disclosure. It's coordinated. Both parties are equal. Uh, no comment. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, got, so. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, th- this goes into some Apple um, vulnerabilities here, one, one of which kind of highlights one of these issues where, uh, you know, I think it was somebody from uh, Spain uh, reported a, a lock screen bypass on iOS 15. And, uh, you know, felt like he was underpaid. They didn't even fix it. You know, they didn't even, you know, when they patched it, they didn't even contact him to, to make sure that it was fixed. You know, and just, you know, Apple doesn't have a great history um, working with researchers here. So it's not a huge uh, surprise, but, you know, still frustrating, I'm sure, for the people that go after Apple vulnerabilities and, and try to report them, uh, you know, Ooh, segue, segue. Let's talk Apple and Visa yeah. and PCI. <laughs> well, do, do we want to say anything else about this lock screen bypass before we, we jump into Apple Pay and and how to steal money off an iPhone? <laughs> no, Anyone? let's just Anyone? go straight for the stealing money off no, the let's iPhone. Go straight, I think. Let's go straight to stealing money. That's a juicy one. That's a juicy yeah, one. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah, so... I, I don't know if you want to if you want to introduce it, Jeff. Um, I actually I did quite a bit of reading on it since you posted it and shared yeah, it with us. You, you probably did more than I did, so go ahead. I'll I'll, I'll just uh, I'll provide the color commentary. All right. So basically, the idea here, you know, paying for things should be convenient. You know, we all have cards in our wallets. You know, where you can just contactless do the contactless pay. 
Um, you know, most smartwatches now, you know, you can just hold up to the credit card reader and, and, and do it. And so they introduced uh, Apple and, and uh, it's not just Apple and Visa, but in general, Apple Pay and Samsung Pay have this mode called uh, that at least the researchers are calling transport mode. And the idea is you're, you're going through, you know, one of these man traps or uh, you know, I'm trying to remember what they're called. We don't have public transportation turnstile. here. Turnstile. Yeah, turnstile. Thank you. In Knoxville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. you know, you have to own a car pretty much. That's it. Or a um, horse. But yeah. As you're going through the turnstile, you don't have to unlock your phone. Um, the turnstile sends magic bytes to your phone, which unlocks Apple Pay without you having to physically take out your phone, look at it, unlock it, face ID, all that stuff. And you just pay and you go through. And the thing is, uh, the researchers found you can just capture those magic bytes and do a replay attack and and tell the phone that you're a turnstile and you need a thousand pounds. And, and so that was one of the initial shockers for me is that, uh, uh, again, talking about like that brute force attack, there's no rate limiting in here. There, there's no limit to the transaction amount. Uh, it, and this is something designed for public transport. Like you should never have, you should never let that transaction go to a thousand pounds. But just using NFT, if you get close enough to a phone to, uh, NFC. to hit the NF- NFC, uh, NF- yeah, thank NFC. you. NFT is very different. <laughs> very, very, very different. different. Let's not yeah. go there this episode. Thank you, Josh. Uh, yeah, NFC, so almost direct contact within an inch or so uh, is how close you have to get to do this. Um, but just like skimmers work on gas pumps where uh, you know criminals will put an overlay over where you put in your card, um, it, it's as easy as that to take advantage of this thing. And I feel like Apple and Visa are really downplaying the risk of this, especially Tyler, given that you can do a 1,000 pounds. Maybe Tyler could weigh in if if Larry was on. Ty- Tyler left us. Bit. Oh, did he leave? Oh, bye, Tyler. He did. Yeah. Um, yeah he had- I, I think an inch is an exaggeration. I, you know, I've I've been involved in some proximity tests with mobile devices with NFC, and you know, two or three feet is what I've heard. But I'm not going to argue. Oh, well, you know, I, I mean, I, I mean, with with like a normal device, yeah, sure. Yeah. In that case, maybe it's like some fancy antenna or something like that. But I'm talking about like, you know, where you can brush up against somebody or something like that right. with a. Because right. all you need to do this is a the researchers used a Proxmark uh, RDV4, which is a three hundred four hundred dollar device. I've got one. It's how I program the the chip that I've got uh, implanted in my hand, and um, and an Android phone. You know, so very easy to have in your pocket. Brush up against somebody, still a thousand dollars from from their phone with something just sitting in your back pocket or side pocket. So the so the color commentary, at least initially, is uh, you know Google Pay, Apple Pay, these things, these alternative forms of payment uh, started coming out. Gosh, they've been around a while now, maybe eight or ten years ago. The attraction. I, I wouldn't call them alternative forms though, because they're using the normal cards in your wallet. They well, let me finish the attraction. Okay from the merchant perspective is that because it, you know it's sort of uh, a layer of abstraction to the to the credit card 
it's not subject to PCI requirements. And then, woohoo, we don't have to do PCI. All we have to do is accept Wait, Apple Pay and Google Pay. There's a layer really? of abstraction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because these... There's, these oh, because there's no the, PAN? Because there's no PAN. They're, they're using, you know, it's, it's oh. a, you know, the, the card is registered and you're passing a token. You know, yes. I am, I'm Jeff, I've got Google Pay, Apple Pay, and I have my Visa card registered in its card XYZ. So they're just passing token XYZ that somewhere on the back end, somebody else is looking up, oh, XYZ is Visa card, here's the number, send it on for authorization. Yeah, so the, no, you're right. So the allure, the allure yeah. is merchants don't have to worry about PCI if they're accepting this, this form of payment. Um, woohoo, we can make PCI go away. The pain, the, 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 the burden of, of compliance go away because we can accept something else because there's a layer of abstraction and, right. and I'm, they're thinking we're not dealing with the pan, but what it is really is a layer of abstraction. And, and I think it was when and that's correct. This isn't, this shouldn't be a PCI issue. You know, this is an Apple or a visa issue. And one of the points the researchers make is that Apple alone could fix this or visa right. alone could fix this but instead of either of them fixing it alone or getting together and fixing it they both de decided to just point the fingers at each other and not fix it so the person that loses well, and, that, is, and that's and that's the beauty the and consumer. the ugliness of the article is the they're on record pointing fingers at each other it yeah. is though a pci issue in the context of if you're talking about the security of a transaction and the ability for, and, and this is the weird thing about PCI. PCI is all involved uh, with trying to prevent this, the theft of credit card data. And what are you going to do with credit card data? If you steal it, you're going to commit fraud, but it doesn't directly deal with fraud, which is, it's yeah, a no, weird little wrinkle, but it's two different things. This doesn't, this is impersonating a merchant, basically. This isn't stealing the credit card data. This is mm -hmm. doing a, a, a fraudulent transaction using a, you know, your own merchant ID or something like that. You, you need some kind of merchant account to be able to pull this off. Well, no. No, you don't. I don't think you do. I think you need to impersonate no, the, the it's ticket more like terminal. A man, it, it, it's more more like a man in the middle, and they're yeah. What I read into it is they're exploiting what is apparently a trust relationship that's built in somewhere between you know if something's talking to a payment terminal, they've set up some sort of you don't have to unlock your phone, and therefore they're trusting the payment terminals, and they're they're doing something to fail. They're failing to validate that it's an actual payment terminal. You, you're doing you're doing a, a retail merchant payment is what you're doing. And and one of the criticisms of it is that it doesn't lock it down to just transportation merchants. You can use any kind of merchant uh, category. No, no, no. Actually in the in the article it says that it it's it's impersonating a transit kiosk or terminal or turnstile or whatever. And right, then they're it just talking about the magic number. Then it modifies the transaction tags to say, oh by the way, you've already been unlocked. Now let's make it a thousand thousand pounds or thousand dollars or whatever. Right, so, but you can't do uh, a transaction without a merchant account. Like you, 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 I mean, it's it's like having a virtual terminal, you know, and, and a virtual terminal doesn't work without some kind of merchant account or processing uh, account. That's that. Well, 
I'd like that to might say be a fact that you're right, but I true think you're not. They're, you're, you're, I think you're thinking. Well, I mean, about if, the if you read the paper, and you, they explain you can it. In steal the, paper. the money. You can steal the money, even though the settlement doesn't happen, because the merchant ID doesn't usually come in until the settlement of the transaction. The transaction initially is authorized. You're the consumer. There's, you know, you've got enough in your credit balance. You've got enough in your debit card. They didn't specify whether this would work with a debit card. I'm assuming it would. You know, you you can make this payment because you got enough to cover it. That's the authorization initially. Settlement comes later, where the merchant ID comes in. So I I I could be wrong. You could be right. I don't think it's a factor here. Is my well, I, I mean, how do you how do you do any of that without a terminal or a merchant account? How do you authorize? Well, the point is, the, the, what they're what they're exploiting is they're mimicking uh, a, a terminal account, and 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 somehow they're exploiting the fact that somehow Apple or Visa isn't checking something like a merchant ID. Like, is this a registered device? Is this, is this a known path? Is this a known whatever? Um, I, I think you're touching on what's what's m making it a problem and why it's been demonstrated a demonstrated attack because they're not something they're not doing something that they could be doing in terms of validating that this is a real terminal that should be initiating this transaction. I think that's we should probably read the paper, but I think it's fascinating that they're. They're finding well, that, a video. And, I mean, it's just I'm, such a I shocker that convenience it. actually opens you up to attacks. Oh my God, this is my shocked face. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, like that. yeah, you do things for convenience. It's insecure or it could be insecure and that's not going to help. Well, to me, the punchline yeah. of the article was, you know, after, you know, after an Apple and Visa did their finger pointing, it, it's not our problem. It's their problem. They should fix it or not. And each one said, well, this isn't really a problem. You know, the end of the article said, you know, we tried this against other devices like Samsung devices. And I forget what the third one was. And it didn't work. So apparently there's a fix. There's something that could be done there. Oh, I absolutely. Yeah. And, and they make recommendations in there. And MasterCard, you know, five years ago had a fix for this. And it, it's just not, you know, it's not been implemented yet. You know, so they're, they're fully aware of how to do this more securely. They just haven't because they don't think it's that big of an issue. And, and they've decided to spend their energy arguing whether or not it's an issue than actually fix it. Right. And, and, you know, and where this, I think, is a PCI issue is because, you know, this has to do with payment, you know, credit card transactions, which is largely driven by the PCI requirements. There's nothing specific in PCI that says they have to do something here. There maybe possibly could be something because PCI provides a lot of standards for the devices and the equipment and the card readers and the keypads and all that kind of stuff. There might be something in there that's a violation. I'm not as conversant on those standards, but Largely, I think they're not doing anything because they don't have to or they don't think they have to because nothing is driving them to do it from a regulatory, which in this case is a PCI standpoint. That's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, this this is an issue at the contactless EMV level, you know, not, not at the PCI level. I, I think, you know, this is not something where, you know, merchants can fix this by implementing it differently like we we need visa or or um uh, apple 
to fix this because it's not an issue with Samsung Pay. It's not an issue with um, MasterCard. You know, it's an issue specifically with Visa and and with Apple. Well, and guess what? Samsung uses Visa also. So what's you know what's sticking out to me is Apple. Sorry, Apple. I think it's your problem. Fix right, fix and, and they they you know that that's the thing with Apple. They they want this very smooth um, you know user experience with their products. You know, and absolutely they've got that here. You know, but I mean the fact that they haven't even put in you know, and that's where the finger pointing comes in. You know, basic basically locking it down to a type of merchant. They haven't done that. They haven't locked right. down the the limit. You know, to to what you can uh, do with with one of these, uh, um, you know, uh, transit transactions. You know, like like a thousand pounds. There's no public transport that costs a thousand pounds that I know of. Hey, those uh, Uber right. helicopters are not cheap. Okay. Come on, man. Jeez. <laughs> no, uh, what turnstile are you going through subways. for Subways. We're talking subways here, Jazz. If you had a good enough helicopter driver, come on. Tubes. Yep. The tube. That's yeah, a good helicopter so pilot that can fly through subway tubes. Is, is my, my biggest issue with this is them arguing that this is something that can only happen in a lab. You know, where, I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen the skimmers that criminals have come up with. But absolutely, they can come up with something to take advantage of this. You know, that that small, that fits on top of the turnstile right next to where you would normally tap your, your phone or whatever. Like, I have no doubt that criminals can, can physically build uh, an electronic device to take advantage of this. You know, maybe yeah. you embed it within the counter uh, at a bar. So when people set their Apple phone on the bar, you know, it, it, it starts draining money out of your out of your visa. You know, oh they, there's God. so many ways to implement this. Do you remember at DEF CON like four years ago, they had the charging station that was also, you know, if you left your yeah. phone unlocked yeah. when you plugged it in, it would also happen to take your data. You know, like now you're talking about in a lab. Come on. Yeah, that's, that's There's, weak. But again, uh, and I'm not trying to beat up on Apple, but I'm still bitter that with the iPhone four, it was designed for right-handed people. And I happen to be left-handed still holding that against them. Um, but the, the, you know, the article the says the, the, you know, the antenna was in the phone in a way oh, that, really? you know, you know, left-handed people hold their phones in their right hand and it was covering up the antenna. Yeah. And th- that was the one you that, heard the gap that uh, if you covered the gap, the antenna stopped working. Yep. I- I'm left-handed um, and I always use my phone in my left hand. Wait, 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 wait. That's your challenge. Every host on here right now is left-handed? I'm left-handed. Very. So I, am I. I'm what ambidextrous. The I, I've, I've learned to be ambidextrous because being left-handed is a pain. But We're all ambidextrous because it's impossible to do everything left-handed in a right-handed world. <laughs> that notwithstanding. All three of us are left-handed. That is really weird. The article, the article... Well, now would be a good time to scroll up in the Discord. The talk I did, uh, the keynote for B-Sides Charlotte last week, is talking about, uh, you know, how do you know you're a hacker? How do you how do you do, you know find out you're a hacker? How do you identify people that have the potential of working in this in- industry? And I used myself as a model. It's like I don't know. NSA figured out how to hire me. I know I'm a hacker now. I didn't know it then. Here's here's me. Is anything is anything like other people? Does this resonate? And one of the things I brought mm-hmm. up is left-handedness. That notwithstanding, um, 
the the researchers have been talking to Apple over a year about this, uh, and, and this is sort of to me a variation of a theme of other you know. And they talk about how there's similar types of attacks that they've done against uh, you know this type of technology. Um, and again, Samsung, it's not a problem. Mastercard, it's not not a problem. So. You know, everything's pointing to Apple. You got to, and my experience working with Visa over the years and working with Apple over the years, I'm pointing the finger at Apple. Apple, well, uh, because that's the easier place to get change made. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. <laughs> Which is more likely if you put pressure on it, you know, to, to fix it? Apple. Right. <laughs> oh, God. Right. But they're not getting they're not getting any pushback from the PCI world because you know it's not technically a compliance issue because nobody's looking at it because it's not a you know there's no credit card involved so so all it's the not technically PCI. It's not the technically only thing PCI. that's going to move this uh, are, are those skimmers to come out and to start hitting people. Right. I think. Right, but we're going to start seeing EMV skimmers. How long does that take when actual attacks and actual you know damage is caused, and that's the motivation for wholesale change? I'm predicting four to six months, max. Min or max? Max. Four, it's going to take three months min because they've got to build up a stockpile, test it, get it working so idiots can can make it work. Uh, and then between you know three months later, let's say, it's it's just going to be everywhere. So turn off NFC on your iPhone, everybody, in about a, a month or two. No, you, you don't have to turn off NFC, actually. You just need to turn off, and, and that's actually what they recommended in the paper, is just this um, uh, transport mode, which, which that's not what Apple oh, calls it. the Express uh, Transit or something like that. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just need to, within Apple Pay, you just need to turn off this Express Transit travel feature, uh, and you're fine. That's all you need to do. And, again, and yeah, that, it, that's, that's a convenience You have thing. an extra step when you go through this, the turnstile to, to pay at the turnstile. You got to unlock your phone and then tap it. Just, just a bit of inconvenience. On the security versus usability spectrum, it's really not that big a deal. Yeah, you so. still I mean, you still don't have to go to the kiosk and load up an Oyster card. So it's still con more convenient than that, right? This is very true. Very true. Very well said, sir. Um, and remember you, the Oyster Cards talk that got pulled? How many years ago was that? I don't know. Uh, time. Uh, I only know past and future and present. You know, specifics. <laughs> uh, I've lost track of entirely. Uh, what especially that means is you're the, old. Especially with the pandemic. It does. It does. Especially with I've the counted shrooms. many years. If you've ever, you know, uh, ridden the subway at rush hour, though, you know, being able to tap, dip, slide your fare card or whatever, uh, and have the have the turnstile open up me immediately, that's a huge deal, especially for in this case, the merchant is the transit authority. Um, so I'm sure they. I happen to, you know, have a client that was a transit authority for almost two years, a couple of years ago, and. Um, you know, their fare card was a was a was a Mastercard debit card, their own brand. Um, so very familiar with the challenges, but boy, they they absolutely are sensitive to as soon as the tap or dip or whatever happens, they want that turnstile to open in microseconds. So 
anything that's going to help with the convenience of that is going to be what they're promoting. Again, I think there's a lack of, you know, who's Apple answering to uh, a bunch of researchers or their customers? Uh, customers. And their customers (laughs) are not clamoring for change. You know, their customers like, Hey, it works. You know, people are getting through the turnstile. We're good. It's not a piece of when they lose their thousand dollars, they're going to be, why didn't you protect us? Why didn't you protect us? Yeah, but it won't, it won't be on the merchant though. It'll be on, you know, that'll be on Apple or visa and they can, they can have the pissing contest in court. Be interesting to see how Priya would weigh in on this. Who's, who's ultimately liable. I mean, it's the acquiring bank that's going to eat the costs, right? On the fraud yep. from this, if, if fraud does occur. Uh, yeah, but in this case, uh, you know, the yeah, yes, technically, but, you know, given that they're sort of doing a relay attack and, and you know, it, it would be hard to find the, the point, of, point of common interaction, you know, where's the fraud happening? But yes, the short yeah. answer is yes. It would be on the acquiring bank, and that's when they would care. Not the merchant, yeah. but the merchant's acquiring bank. Yeah, wh- wherever it goes when you do a, a chargeback, you know, because some of the people might, you know, when they see this, they might have to go through a chargeback process and say, you know, I, I, I don't recognize this this charge, you know, because it's going right. to be a different merchant. It's not going to be the uh, the transit merchant. It's not going to be. Um, you know, you know, whatever the charge is when you go through the turnstile, it could be anything, you know, right. because they're not limiting sort the, of, the merchant type. Yeah. And that was sort of the, what I thought that was the creative and ner- nefarious part of this attack is the fact that the relay could be happening anywheres. You know, if they have an internet connection, sure. they could be sending it across the globe to try to initiate a transaction, either to collect money or to pay for another service. Um, that you know, that's just going to make the the investigation of the fraud that much harder. You know, finding that point of common interaction. Where where is all this fraud happening? What's you know, where is it all starting from? Doesn't mean yeah. that they don't figure it out. Because trust me, the car brands have invested quite a bit of money in 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 fraud detection and fraud prevention. You know, if you've ever tried to use you know one of your cards in a way, especially a, a corporate card, in a way that's not normally expected uh, to be a business or travel transaction um and you've had your 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 card declined and you're or you're told to call them to authorize it it's a pain in the ass but you know they they well and and criminals do know this you know so sometimes when you see stolen credit cards they will find a mule within like 200 miles of you or whatever that that fraud threshold is and they'll have them yep. take out $600 from an ATM within that many miles uh, from you because they, they know what some of those fraud controls are. You know, so they, they're, well, they're not I've all had, smart, but some of them are clever enough to get around fraud controls. Yeah, I've, uh, I've had uh, uh, gas station fuel companies, as a, you know, several of them as customers over the years. Very common fraud practice is to pay for a dollar of gas at the pump. And then go inside to the convenience store and buy, you know, cartons of cigarettes that, that they can turn around and monetize by selling it on the street. Very yep, common yep. fraud practice. And, and, the, and, and the, you know, 
the gas stations are, uh, uh, you know, acutely aware that that's a, a, an attack method. That's a way of proving that the car is valid. I was in the line at the my local grocery store. It's been a couple of years ago, and the guy in front of me, I wouldn't even, you know, I wasn't paying attention. You know, I was just standing in line. But you know, after it happened, it occurred to me the guy in front of me he had a whole bunch of stuff that he was trying to buy cigarettes, and he was trying to use a card. And it was declined. So he tried another one and it was declined. And he tried another one and it was declined. And he finally walked away. And I'm like, and afterwards, like, oh crap, I was just witnessing an attempted fraud. And and I should have noticed that earlier and notified somebody. Because the you know, the the checkout clerk was like, ah, you know, I gotta sweep up all this product that they didn't you know buy and put it back on the shelf type of thing. But that's exactly what was happening. He hadn't gone and tried to buy a dollar of gas, unfortunately. Anyway, uh, Apple, change your habits. Do something about this. Uh, we can move on. We can close. Whatever your, you know, it's your show, Adrian. What do you want to do? Yeah, no, I, th I think it's a good note to uh, to end on. So thanks to the researchers, uh, Andrea Radu and the the other folks in in the UK who uh, worked on this, put together the source code, wrote the paper. Um, I, I don't think it's something that can only happen in a lab. <laughs> I, I hope you get some movement on this. So with that, uh, thanks to Tyler, who had to drop off a bit early. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Josh, for joining me today and uh, helping me out without Paul here. This is not my show. This is uh, very different from Enterprise Security Weekly, where... I'm the main host of that show now, so it's uh, a different experience for me. I, I don't usually drink wine <laughs> during Enterprise Security Weekly, but cheers and thank you for joining me. <laughs>